Chapter 8 Profession of Sœur Thérèse Need I tell you, dear mother, about the retreat before my profession? Far from receiving consolation, I went through it in a state of utter dryness, and as if abandoned by God. Jesus, as was his wont, slept in my little boat. How rarely do souls suffer him to sleep in peace! This good master is so wearied with continually making fresh advances that he eagerly avails himself of the repose I offer him. And no doubt he will sleep on until my great and everlasting retreat. But instead of being grieved at this, I am glad. In truth, I am no saint, as this frame of mind well shows. I ought not to rejoice in my dryness of soul, but rather attribute it to my want of fervor and fidelity. That I fall asleep so often during meditation and thanksgiving after communion should distress me. Well, I am not distressed. I reflect that little children are equally dear to their parents, whether they are asleep or awake. That in order to perform operations, doctors put their patients to sleep. And finally, that the Lord knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are but dust. Yet, apparently barren, as was my retreat, and those which followed have been no less so, I unconsciously received many interior lights on the best means of pleasing God and practicing virtue. I have often observed that our Lord will not give me any store of provisions, but nourishes me each moment with food that is ever new. I find it within me without knowing how it has come there. I simply believe that it is Jesus himself hidden in my poor heart who is secretly at work, inspiring me with what he wishes me to do as each occasion arises. Shortly before my profession I received the Holy Father's blessing through the hands of Brother Simeon. And this precious blessing undoubtedly helped me through the most terrible storm of my whole life. On the eve of the great day, instead of being filled with the customary sweetness, my vocation suddenly seemed to me as unreal as a dream. The devil, for it was he, made me feel sure I was wholly unsuited for life in the Carmel, and that I was deceiving my superiors by entering on a way to which I was not called. The darkness was so bewildering that I understood but one thing. I had no religious vocation and must return to the world. I cannot describe the agony I endured. What was I to do in such a difficulty? I chose the right course deciding to tell my novice mistress of the temptation without delay. I sent for her to come out a choir, and, though full of confusion, 
I confessed the state of my soul. Fortunately, she saw more clearly than I did, and reassured me completely by laughing frankly at my story. The devil was put to instant flight by my humble avowal. What he wanted was to keep me from speaking, and thus draw me into his snares. But it was my turn now to ensnare him, for, to make my humiliation more complete, I also told you everything, dear mother, and your consoling words dispelled my last fears. On the morning of September the 8th, a wave of peace flooded my soul, and in that peace which surpasseth all understanding, I pronounced my holy vows. Many were the graces I asked. I felt myself truly a queen, and took advantage of my title to obtain every favor from the king for his ungrateful subjects. No one was forgotten. I wished that every sinner on earth might be converted, that on that day purgatory should set its captives free. And I bore upon my heart this letter containing what I desired for myself. O Jesus, my divine spouse, grant that my baptismal robe may never be sullied. Take me from this world rather than let me stain my soul by committing the least willful fault. May I never seek or find anything but Thee alone. May all creatures be nothing to me, and I nothing to them. May no earthly thing disturb my peace. O oh, Jesus, I ask but peace, peace, and above all, love, love without limit. Jesus, I ask that for thy sake I may die a martyr. Give me martyrdom of soul or body, or rather, Give me both the one and the other. Grant that I may fulfill my engagements in all their perfection, that no one may think of me, that I may be trodden underfoot, forgotten, as a little grain of sand. I offer myself to thee, O my beloved, that thou mayst ever perfectly accomplish in me thy holy will without let or hindrance from creatures. When at the close of this glorious day I laid my crown of roses, according to custom, at Our Lady's feet, it was without regret. I felt that time would never lessen my happiness. It was the Nativity of Mary what a beautiful feast on which to become the spouse of Jesus! It was the little newborn Holy Virgin who presented her little flower to the little Jesus. That day everything was little, except the graces I received, except my peace and joy in gazing upon the beautiful starlit sky at night, and in thinking 
that soon I should fly away to heaven and be united to my divine spouse amid eternal bliss. On September 24th took place the ceremony of my receiving the veil. This feast was indeed veiled in tears. Papa was too ill to come and bless his little queen. At the last minute, Monsignor Hugonin, who should have presided, was unable to do so. And for other reasons also, the day was a painful one. And yet, amid it all, my soul was profoundly at peace. That day it pleased our Lord that I should not be able to restrain my tears, and those tears were not understood. It is true I had borne far harder trials without shedding a tear, but then I had been helped by special graces, whilst on this day Jesus left me to myself, and I soon showed my weakness. Eight days after I had taken the veil, my cousin, Jean Garin, was married to Dr. Lanille. When she came to see us afterwards, and I heard of all the little attentions she lavished on her husband, my heart thrilled, and I thought, it shall never be said that a woman in the world does more for her husband than I do for Jesus, my beloved and filled with fresh ardor, I set myself more earnestly than ever to please my heavenly spouse, the King of Kings, who had deigned to honor me by a divine alliance. Having seen the letter announcing the marriage, I amused myself by composing the following invitation, which I read to the novices, in order to bring home to them what had struck me so forcibly that the glory of all earthly unions is as nothing compared to the titles of a spouse of our divine Lord. God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, Sovereign Ruler of the universe, and the glorious Virgin Mary, Queen of the heavenly court, announce to you the spiritual espousals of their august Son, Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with little Therese Martin, now Princess and Lady of his Kingdoms, of the Holy Childhood and the Passion, assigned to her as a dowry by her divine spouse, from which kingdoms she holds her titles of nobility, of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face. It was not possible to invite you to the wedding feast which took place on the mountain of Carmel, September 8, 1890. The heavenly court was alone admitted. But you are requested to be present at the wedding feast, which will take place tomorrow, the day of eternity, when Jesus, the Son of God, will come in the clouds of heaven, in the splendor of his majesty, to judge the living and the dead. The hour being still uncertain, you are asked to hold yourselves in readiness and watch. 
And now, mother, what more shall I say? It was through your hands that I gave myself to our Lord, and you have known me from childhood. Need I write my secrets? Forgive me if I cut short the story of my religious life. During the general retreat following my profession, I received great graces. As a rule, I find preached retreats most trying, but this one was quite an exception. I anticipated so much suffering that I prepared myself by a fervent novena. It was said that the good priest understood better how to convert sinners than to direct the souls of nuns. Well, then, I must be a great sinner, for God made use of this holy religious to bring me much consolation. At that time I had all kinds of interior trials which I found it impossible to explain to anyone. Suddenly I was able to lay open my whole soul. The Father understood me in a marvelous way. He seemed to divine my state and launched me full sail upon that ocean of confidence and love in which I had longed to advance, but so far had not dared. He told me that my faults did not pain the good God, and added, At this moment I hold his place, and I assure you from him that he is well pleased with your soul. How happy these consoling words made me! I had never been told before that it was possible for faults not to pain the Sacred Heart. This assurance filled me with joy and helped me to bear with patience the exile of this life. It was also the echo of my inmost thoughts. In truth, I had long known that the Lord is more tender than a mother, and I have sounded the depths of more than one mother's heart. I know that a mother is ever ready to forgive her child's small thoughtless faults. How often have I not had this sweet experience? No reproach could have touched me more than one single kiss from my mother. My nature is such that fear makes me shrink, while under love's sweet rule I not only advance, I fly. Two months after this happy retreat, our venerable foundress, Mother Geneviève of St. Teresa, quitted our little convent to enter the heavenly Carmel. Before speaking of my impressions at the time of her death, I should like to tell you what a joy it was to have lived for some years with a soul whose holiness was not inimitable, but lay in the practice of simple and hidden virtues. More than once she was to me a source of great consolation. One Sunday I went to the infirmary to pay her a visit, but as two of the older nuns were there, 
I was retiring quietly. When she called me and said, with something of inspiration in her manner, "'Wait, my child. I have just a word for you. You are always asking me for a spiritual bouquet. Well, today I give you this one. Serve the Lord in peace and in joy. Remember that our God is the God of peace.' I thanked her, quite simply and went out of the room. I was moved almost to tears, and was convinced that God had revealed to her the state of my soul. That day I had been sorely tried, almost to sadness. Such was the darkness that I no longer knew if I were beloved of God. And so, dear mother, you can understand what light and consolation succeeded this gloom. The following Sunday I asked her whether she had received any revelation about me, but she assured me that she had not, and this only made me admire her the more, for it showed how intimately Jesus lived in her soul and directed her words and actions. Such holiness seems to me the most true, the most holy. It is the holiness I desire, for it is free from all illusion. On the day when this revered mother ended her exile, I received a very special grace. It was the first time I had assisted at a deathbed. Yet, though the sight enchanted me by its beauty, my two hours of watching had made me very drowsy. I was grieved at this. But at the moment her soul took its flight to heaven, my feelings were completely changed. In an instant I was filled with an indescribable joy and fervor, as if the soul of our blessed foundress made me share in the happiness she already enjoyed for I am quite convinced that she went straight to heaven. I had said to her some time previously, You will not go to purgatory, dear mother. I hope not, she answered sweetly. Certainly, God would not disappoint a hope so full of humility. And the proof that he did not lies in the many favors we have received. The sisters hastened to claim something belonging to our beloved mother, and you know what a precious relic is mine. During her agony I had noticed a tear glistening like a beautiful diamond. That tear, the last she shed on this earth, did not fall. I still saw it shining when her body was exposed in the choir. When evening came, I made bold to approach unseen with a little piece of linen, and I now have the happiness of possessing the last tear of a saint. I attach no importance to my dreams, and indeed they seldom have any special meaning, though I do often wonder how it is that, as I think of God all the day, my mind does not dwell on Him more in my sleep. 
generally I dream of the woods and the flowers, the brooks and the sea, and nearly always of pretty children. Or I chase birds and butterflies such as I have never seen. But if my dreams are sometimes poetical, they are never mystical. However, one night after Mother Genevieve's death, I had a more consoling one. I thought I saw her giving to each of us something that had belonged to herself. When my turn came, her hands were empty, and I was afraid I was not to receive anything. But she looked at me lovingly, and said three times, To you I leave my heart. To you I leave my heart. To you I leave my heart. End of Part 1 of Chapter 8 The Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux Chapter 8, Part 2 About a month after that seraphic death, toward the close of the year 1891, an epidemic of influenza raged in the community. I only had it slightly and was able to be about with two other sisters. It is impossible to imagine the heart-rending state of our Carmel throughout those days of sorrow. The worst sufferers were nursed by those who could hardly drag themselves about. Death was all around us, and when a sister had breathed her last, we had to leave her instantly. My nineteenth birthday was saddened by the death of Mother Sub-Prioress. I assisted with the infirmarian during her agony, and two more deaths quickly followed. I now had to do the sacristy work single-handed, and I wonder sometimes how I was equal to it all. One morning when it was time to rise, I had a presentiment that Sister Magdalene was no more. The dormitory was quite in darkness. No one was leaving her cell. I decided, however, to go in to Sister Magdalene, and I found her dressed, but lying dead on her bed. I was not in the least afraid, and, running to the sacristy, I quickly brought a blessed candle and placed on her head a wreath of roses. Amid all this desolation I felt the hand of God and knew that His heart was watching over us. Our dear sisters left this life for a happier one without any struggle. An expression of heavenly joy shone on their faces, and they seemed only to be enjoying a pleasant sleep. During all these long and trying weeks I had the unspeakable consolation of receiving Holy Communion every day. How sweet it was! For a long time Jesus treated me as a spoiled child, for a longer time than his more faithful spouses. He came to me daily for several months after the influenza had ceased, a privilege not granted to the community. I had not asked this favor, 
that I was unspeakably happy to be united day after day with my beloved. Great was my joy in being allowed to touch the sacred vessels, and prepare the altar-linen on which our Lord was to be laid. I felt that I must increase in fervor, and I often recalled those words addressed to deacons at their ordination. Be you holy, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. What can I tell you, dear mother, about my thanksgivings after communion? There is no time when I taste less consolation. But this is what I should expect. I desire to receive our Lord, not for my own satisfaction, but simply to give Him pleasure. I picture my soul as a piece of waste ground, and beg our Blessed Lady to take away my imperfections, which are as heaps of rubbish, and to build upon it a splendid tabernacle worthy of all heaven, and adorn it with her own adornments. Then I invite all the angels and saints to come and sing canticles of love. And it seems to me that Jesus is well pleased to see himself received so grandly, and I share in his joy. But all this does not prevent distractions and drowsiness from troubling me, and not unfrequently I resolve to continue my thanksgiving throughout the day, since I made it so badly in choir. You see, dear mother, that my way is not the way of fear. I can always make myself happy and profit by my imperfections, and our Lord himself encourages me in this path. Once, contrary to my usual custom, I felt troubled when I approached the holy table. For several days there had not been a sufficient number of hosts, and I had only received a small part of one. This morning I foolishly thought, if the same thing happens today, I shall imagine that Jesus does not care to come into my heart. I approached the communion rails. What a joy awaited me! The priest hesitated a moment, then gave me two entire hosts. Was this not a sweet response? I have much to be thankful for. I will tell you quite openly what the Lord has done for me. He has shown unto me the same mercy as unto King Solomon. All my desires have been satisfied, not only my desires of perfection, but even those of which I understood the vanity, in theory if not in practice. I had always looked on Sister Agnes of Jesus as my model, and I wished to be like her in everything. She used to paint exquisite miniatures and write beautiful poems, and this inspired me with a desire to learn to paint and express my thoughts in verse, that I might do some good to those around me. But I would not ask for these natural gifts, and my desire remained hidden in my heart. Jesus, too, had hidden himself in this poor little heart and he was pleased to show me once more the vanity of all that passes. 
to the great astonishment of the community, I succeeded in painting several pa pictures, and in writing poems which have been a help to certain souls. And just as Solomon, turning to all the works which his hand had wrought, and to the labors wherein he had labored in vain, saw in all things vanity and vexation of mind. So experience showed me that the sole happiness of earth consists in lying hidden and remaining in total ignorance of created things. I understood that without love even the most brilliant deeds count as nothing. These gifts which our Lord lavished upon me, far from doing me any harm, drew me toward him. I saw that he alone is unchangeable. He alone can fill the vast abyss of my desires. And talking of my desires, I must tell you about others of quite a different kind, which the Divine Master has also been pleased to grant. Childish desires, like the wish for snow on my clothing day. You know, dear mother, how fond I am of flowers. When I made myself a prisoner at the age of fifteen, I gave up forever the delights of rambling through meadows bright with the treasures of spring. Well, I never possessed so many flowers as I have had since entering the Carmel. In the world young men present their betrothed with beautiful bouquets, and Jesus did not forget me. For his altar I received in abundance all the flowers I loved best, cornflowers, poppies, marguerites. One little friend only was missing, the purple vetch. I longed to see it again, and at last it came to gladden me and show that in the least as in the greatest God gives a hundredfold, even in this life to those who have left all for his love. But one desire, the dearest of all, and for many reasons the most difficult, remained unfulfilled. It was to see Céline enter the Carmel of Lisieux. However, I had made a sacrifice of my longing, and committed to God alone the future of my beloved sister. I was willing she should be sent to far distant lands, if it must be so. But I wanted, above all things, to see her, like myself, the spouse of Jesus. I suffered deeply, aware that she was exposed in the world to dangers I had never even known. My affection for her was maternal rather than sisterly, and I was filled with solicitude for the welfare of her soul. She was to go one evening with my aunt and cousins to a dance. I know not why, but I felt more anxious than usual, and I shed many tears, imploring our Lord to hinder her dancing. And this was just what happened, for he did not suffer his little spouse to dance that evening, although as a rule she did so most gracefully. And to the astonishment of everyone, her partner, too, found that he was only able to walk gravely up and down with Mademoiselle. 
The poor young man slipped away in confusion, and did not dare appear again that same evening. This unique occurrence increased my confidence in our Lord, and showed me clearly that he had already set his seal on my sister's brow. On July 29, 1894, God called my saintly and much-tried father to himself. For the last two years of his life he was completely paralyzed, so my uncle took him into his house and surrounded him with the tenderest care. He became quite helpless, and was only able to visit us once during the whole course of his illness. It was a sad interview. At the moment of parting, as we said good-bye, he raised his eyes, and pointing upward, said in a voice full of tears, IN HEAVEN! Now that he was with God, the last ties which kept his consoling angel in the world were broken. Angels do not remain on this earth. When they have accomplished their mission, they return instantly to heaven. That is why they have wings. Selene tried, therefore, to fly to the Carmel, but the obstacles seemed insurmountable. One day, when matters were going from bad to worse, I said to our Lord, after Holy Communion, Thou knowest, dear Jesus, how earnestly I have desired that the trials my father endured should serve as his purgatory. I long to know if my wish is granted. I do not ask thee to speak to me. I only want a sign. Thou knowest how much Sister N is opposed to Selene's entering. If she withdraws her opposition, I shall regard it as an answer from thee, and in this way I shall know that my father went straight to heaven. God, who holds in his hand the hearts of his creatures, and inclines them as he will, deigned in his infinite mercy and ineffable condescension to change that sister's mind. She was the first person I met after my thanksgiving, and with tears in her eyes she spoke of Selene's entrance, which she now ardently desired. Shortly afterward the bishop set every obstacle aside, and then you were able, dear mother, without any hesitation, to open our doors to the poor little exile. Now I have no desire left, unless it be to love Jesus, even unto folly. It is love alone that draws me. I no longer wish either for suffering or for death, yet both are precious to me. Long did I call upon them as the messengers of joy. I have suffered much, and I have thought my boat near indeed to the everlasting shore. From earliest childhood I have imagined that the little flower would be gathered in its springtime. The spirit of self-abandonment now is alone my guide. 
I have no other compass, and know not how to ask anything with eagerness, save the perfect accomplishment of God's designs upon my soul. I can say these words of the canticle of our Father, St. John of the Cross. I drank deep in the cellar of my friend, and coming forth again, knew naught of all this plain, and lost the flock I erst was wont to tend. My soul and all its wealth I gave to be his own. No more I tend my flock, all other work is done and all my exercise is love alone. Or rather, love hath so wroughten me since I have known its sway, that all within me, whether good or ill, it makes subservient to the end it seeks, and soon transforms my soul into itself. Full sweet is the way of love, it is true one may fall and be unfaithful to grace, but love, knowing how to profit by everything, quickly consumes whatever is displeasing to Jesus, leaving in the heart only a deep and humble peace. I have obtained many spiritual lights through the works of St. John of the Cross. When I was seventeen and eighteen, they were my only food. But later on, and even now, all spiritual authors leave me cold and dry. However beautiful and touching a book may be, my heart does not respond, and I read without understanding, or, if I understand, I cannot meditate. In my helplessness, the Holy Scriptures and the Imitation are of the greatest assistance. In them I find a hidden manna, genuine and pure. But it is from the Gospels that I find most help in the time of prayer. From them I draw all that I need for my poor soul. I am always discovering in them new lights and hidden mysterious meanings. I know and I have experienced that the kingdom of God is within us. Our Lord has no need of books and teachers to instruct our souls. He, the teacher of teachers, instructs us without any noise of words. I have never heard him speak, yet I know he is within me. He is there always guiding and inspiring me. And just when I need them, lights, hitherto unseen, break in. This is not, as a rule, during my prayers, but in the midst of my daily duties. Sometimes, however, as this evening, at the close of a meditation spent in utter dryness, a word of comfort is given to me, here is the Master I give thee. He will teach thee all that thou shouldst do. I wish thee to read in the Book of Life in which is contained the science of love. The science of love! How sweetly do these words echo in my soul! 
that science alone do I desire. Having given all my substance for it, like the spouse in the canticles, I think that I have given nothing. After so many graces, may I not sing with the psalmist that the Lord is good, that his mercy endureth forever? It seems to me that if every one were to receive such favors, God would be feared by none, but loved to excess, that no one would ever commit the least willful fault, and this through love, not fear. Yet all souls cannot be alike. It is necessary that they should differ from one another, in order that each divine perfection may receive its special honor. To me he has given his infinite mercy, and it is in this ineffable mirror that I contemplate his other attributes. Therein all appear to me radiant with love. His justice, even more perhaps than the rest, seems to me to be clothed with love. What joy to think that our Lord is just, that is to say, that he takes our weakness into account, that he knows perfectly the frailty of our nature. Of what, then, need I be afraid? Will not the God of infinite justice, who deigns so lovingly to pardon the sins of the prodigal son, be also just to me, who am always with him? In the year 1895 I received the grace to understand more than ever how much Jesus desires to be loved. Thinking one day of those who offer themselves as victims to the justice of God, in order to turn aside the punishment reserved for sinners by taking it upon themselves, I felt this offering to be noble and generous, but was very far from feeling myself drawn to make it. Oh, my divine master! I cried from the bottom of my heart. Shall thy justice alone receive victims of holocaust? Has not thy merciful love also need thereof? On all sides it is ignored, rejected. The hearts on which thou wouldst lavish thy merciful love turn to creatures, there to seek their happiness in the miserable satisfaction of a moment instead of casting themselves into thine arms, into the unfathomable furnace of thine infinite love. O oh my God, must thy love which is disdained lie hidden in thy heart? Methinks, if thou shouldst find souls offering themselves as victims of holocaust to thy love, Thou wouldst consume them rapidly. Thou wouldst be well pleased to suffer the flames of infinite tenderness to escape that are imprisoned in thy heart. If thy justice, which is of earth, must needs be satisfied, 
how much more must thy merciful love desire to inflame souls, since thy mercy reacheth even to the heavens. O Jesus, let me be that happy victim. Consume thy holocaust with the fire of divine love. Dear mother, you know the love, or rather the oceans of grace, which flooded my soul immediately after I made that act of oblation on June 9, 1895. From that day I have been penetrated and surrounded with love. Every moment this merciful love renews me and purifies me, leaving in my soul no trace of sin. I cannot fear purgatory. I know I do not merit to enter even that into that place of expiation with the holy souls, but I also know that the fire of love is more sanctifying than the fire of purgatory. I know that Jesus could not wish useless suffering for us, and he would not inspire me with the desires I feel were he not willing to fulfill them. Editor's Notes The Wedding Letter This letter, the style of which may seem strange to English ears, is modeled closely on the formal and quaint letters whereby French parents of the better class announce to their friends the marriage of their children. Such letters are issued in the name of relatives to the third or fourth degree. The Wish for Painting Therese had kept this wish hidden in her heart from the days of her childhood, and later in life she made the following confidence. I was ten the day Papa told Celine that she was to begin painting lessons. I felt quite envious. Then he turned to me and said, Well, little queen, would you like to learn painting too? I was going to say, Yes, indeed I should when Marie remarked that I had not the same taste for it as Celine. She carried her point, and I said nothing, thinking it was a splendid opportunity to make a big sacrifice for our Lord. I was so anxious to learn that even now I wonder how I was able to keep silence. Celine entering the convent? Celine entered the convent on September 14, 1894, and took the name of Sister Genevieve of St. Teresa. Quotes from St. John of the Cross are from the Spiritual Canticle, stanzas 18 and 20, and the Hymn to the Deity. The Science of Love is from the Revelations of Our Lord to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. End of part two of chapter eight. The Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux. Chapter nine. The Night of the Soul. Dear Mother, I thought I had written enough, and now you wish for more details of my religious life. 
I will not argue, but I cannot help smiling when I have to tell you things that you know quite as well as I do. Nevertheless, I will obey. I do not ask what use this manuscript can be to anyone. I assure you that even if you were to burn it before my eyes without having read it, I should not mind in the least. The opinion is not uncommon in the community that you have always indulged me ever since I entered the convent. However, man seeth those things that appear, but the Lord beholdeth the heart. Dear Mother, once again I thank you for not having spared me. Jesus knew well that his little flower needed the life-giving water of humiliation. It was too weak to take root otherwise, and to you it owes so great a blessing. But for some months the Divine Master has entirely changed his method of cultivating his little flower. Finding, no doubt, that it has been sufficiently watered, he now allows it to expand under the warm rays of a brilliant sun. He smiles on it, and this favor also comes through you, dear mother. But far from doing it harm, those smiles make the little flower grow in a wondrous way. Deep down in its heart it treasures those precious drops of dew, the mortifications of other days and they remind it that it is small and frail. Even were all creatures to draw near, to admire and flatter it, that would not add a shade of idle satisfaction to the true joy that thrills it, on realizing that in God's eyes it is but a poor worthless thing and nothing more. When I say that I am indifferent to praise, I am not speaking, dear mother, of the love and confidence that you show me. On the contrary, I am deeply touched thereby, but I feel that I have now nothing to fear, and I can listen to all those praises unperturbed, attributing to God all that is good in me. If it please Him to make me appear better than I am, it is nothing to me. He can act as he will. My God, how many ways dost thou lead souls? We read of saints who left absolutely nothing at their death, not the least thing by which to remember, remember them, not even a single line of writing. And there are others, like our Holy Mother St. Teresa, who have enriched the Church with their sublime teaching, and have not hesitated to reveal the secrets of the King, that he may be better known and better loved. Which of these two ways is more pleasing to the Lord? It seems to me that they are equally so. All those beloved by God have followed the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, who commanded the prophets to write, Tell the just man, that all is well. Yes, all is well when one seeks only the Master's will. 
and so I, poor little flower, obey my Jesus when I try to please you who represent him here on earth. You know it has ever been my desire to become a saint, but I have always felt in comparing myself with the saints that I am as far removed from them as the grain of sand which the passerby tramples underfoot is remote from the mountain whose summit is lost in the clouds. Instead of being discouraged, I concluded that God would not inspire desires which could not be realized, and that I may aspire to sanctity in spite of my littleness. For me to become great is impossible. I must bear with myself and my many imperfections. But I will seek out a means of getting to heaven by a little way. Very short and very straight. A little way that is wholly new. We live in an age of inventions. Nowadays the rich need not trouble to climb the stairs. They have elevators instead. Well, I mean to find an elevator by which I may be raised unto God, for I am too tiny to climb the steep stairway of perfection. I have sought to find in Holy Scripture some suggestion as to what this elevator might be, which I so much desired. And I read these words, uttered by the eternal wisdom itself. Whosoever is a little one, let him come to me. Then I drew near to God, feeling sure that I had discovered what I sought. But, wishing to know further what he would do to the little one, I continued my search, and this is what I found. You shall be carried at the breasts and upon the knees. As one whom the mother caresseth, so will I comfort you. Never have I been consoled by words more tender and sweet. Thine arms, then, O Jesus, are the elevator which must raise me up even unto heaven. To get there I need not grow. On the contrary, I must remain little. I must become still less. O oh, my God! Thou hast gone beyond my expectation, and I, I will sing thy mercies. Thou hast taught me, O Lord, from my youth, until now I have declared thy wonderful works, and thus unto old age and gray hairs. What will this old age be for me? It seems to me that it could as well be now as later. Two thousand years are no more in the eyes of the Lord than twenty years, than a single day. But do not think, dear mother, that your child is anxious to leave you, and deems it a greater grace to die in the morning than in the evening of life. To please Jesus is what she really values and desires above all things. 
now that he seems to come near and draw her to his heavenly home, she is glad. She has understood that God has need of no one to do good upon earth, still less of her than of others. Meantime, I know your will, dear mother. You wish me to carry out at your side a work which is both sweet and easy. And this work I shall complete in heaven. You have said to me, as our Lord said to St. Peter, Feed my lambs. I am amazed, for I feel that I am so little. I have entreated you to feed your little lambs yourself and to keep me among them. You have complied in part with my reasonable wish and have called me their companion rather than their mistress, telling me nevertheless to lead them through fertile and shady pastures, to point out where the grass is sweetest and best, and warn them against the brilliant but poisonous flowers, which they must never touch except to crush underfoot. This is all a reference to St. Therese's work as novice mistress. How is it, dear mother, that my youth and inexperience have not frightened you? Are you not afraid that I shall let your lambs stray afar? In acting as you have done, perhaps you remembered that our Lord is often pleased to give wisdom to little ones. On this earth, it is rare indeed to find souls who do not measure God's omnipotence by their own narrow thoughts. The world is always ready to admit exceptions everywhere here below. God alone is denied this liberty. It has long been the custom among men to reckon experience by age, for in his youth the holy King David sang to his Lord, I am young and despised. But in the same psalm he does not fear to say, I have had understanding above old men, because I have sought thy commandment. Thy word is as a lamp to my feet, and a light to my paths. I have sworn and I am determined to keep the judgments of thy justice. And you did not even consider it imprudent to assure me one day that the Divine Master had enlightened my soul and given me the experience of years. I am too little now to be guilty of vanity. I am likewise too little to endeavor to prove my humility by fine-sounding words. I prefer to own, in all simplicity, that he that is mighty hath done great things to me and the greatest is that he has shown me my littleness and how incapable I am of anything good. My soul has known trials of many kinds. I have suffered much on this earth. In my childhood I suffered with sadness, but now I find sweetness in all things. Anyone but you, dear mother, who know me thoroughly, would smile at reading these pages, 
for has ever a soul seemed less tried than mine? But if the martyrdom which I have endured for the past year were made known, how astonished everyone would be! Since it is your wish, I will try to describe it, but there are no words, really, to explain these things. The words will always fall short of the reality. During Lent last year I felt much better than ever, and continued so until Holy Week, in spite of the fast, which I observed in all its rigor. But in the early hours of Good Friday, Jesus gave me the hope that I should soon join him in his beautiful home. How sweet is this memory! I could not obtain permission to remain watching at the altar of repose throughout the Thursday night, and I returned to our cell at midnight. Scarcely was my head laid on the pillow when I felt a hot stream rise to my lips. I thought I was going to die, and my heart nearly broke with joy. But as I had already put out our lamp, I mortified my curiosity until the morning, and slept in peace. At five o'clock, when it was time to get up, I remembered at once that I had some good news to learn, and going to the window I found, as I had expected, that our handkerchief was soaked with blood. Dearest mother, what hope was mine? I was firmly convinced that on this anniversary of his death my beloved had allowed me to hear his first call, like a sweet distant murmur, heralding his joyful approach. I assisted at prime and chapter most fervently, and then I hastened to cast myself at my mother's knees and confide to her my happiness. I did not feel the least pain, so I easily obtained permission to finish Lent as I had begun, and on this Good Friday I shared in all the austerities of the Carmel without any relaxation. Never had these austerities seemed sweeter to me. The hope of soon entering heaven transported me with joy. Still full of joy, I returned to our cell on the evening of that happy day, and was quietly falling asleep, when my sweet Jesus gave me the same sign as on the previous night of my speedy entrance to eternal life. I felt such a clear and lively faith that the thought of heaven was my sole delight. I could not believe it possible for men to be utterly devoid of faith and I was convinced that those who deny the existence of another world really lie in their hearts. But during the paschal days so full of light, our Lord made me understand that there really are, in truth, souls bereft of faith and hope, who through abuse of grace lose these precious treasures, the only source of pure and lasting joy. He allowed my soul to be overwhelmed with darkness, and the thought of heaven 
which had consoled me from my earliest childhood, now became a subject of conflict and torture. This trial did not last merely days or weeks. I have been suffering for months, and I still await deliverance. I wish I could express what I feel, but it is beyond me. One must have passed through this dark tunnel to understand its blackness. However, I will try to explain it by means of a comparison. Let me suppose that I had been born in a land of thick fogs and had never seen the beauties of nature or a single ray of sunshine. Although I had heard of these wonders from my early youth and knew that the country wherein I dwelt was not my real home, there was another land unto which I should always look forward. Now, this is not a fable invented by an inhabitant of the land of fogs. It is the solemn truth. For the king of that sunlit country dwelt for three and thirty years in the land of darkness. And alas, the darkness did not understand that he was the light of the world. But, dear Lord, thy child has understood thou art the light divine. She asks thy pardon for her unbelieving brethren, and is willing to eat the bread of sorrow as long as thou mayst wish. For love of thee, she will sit at that table of bitterness where those poor sinners take their food, and she will not stir from it until thou givest the sign. But may she not say in her own name, and the name of her guilty brethren, O God, be merciful to us sinners! Send us away justified. May all those on whom faith does not shine see the light at last. O oh my God, if that table which they profane can be purified by one that loves thee, I am willing to remain there alone to eat the bread of tears, until it shall please thee to bring me to thy kingdom of light. The only favor I ask is that I may never give thee cause for offense. From the time of my childhood, I felt that one day I should be set free from this land of darkness. I believed it, not only because I had been told so by others, but my heart's most secret and deepest longings assured me that there was in store for me another and more beautiful country, an abiding dwelling place. I was like Christopher Columbus, whose genius anticipated the discovery of the new world. And suddenly the mists about me have penetrated my very soul, and have enveloped me so completely that I cannot even picture to myself this promised country.
all has faded away. When my heart, weary of the surrounding darkness, tries to find some rest in the thought of a life to come, my anguish increases. It seems to me that out of the darkness I hear the mocking voice of the unbeliever. You dream of a land of light and fragrance. You dream that the creator of these wonders will be yours forever. You think one day to escape from these mists where you now languish. Shh! Nay, rejoice in death, which will give you not what you hope for, but a night darker still, the night of utter nothingness. Dear Mother, this description of what I suffer is as far removed from reality as the first rough outline is from the model. But I fear that to write more would be to blaspheme. Even now, I may have said too much. May God forgive me. He knows that I try to live by faith, although it does not afford me the least consolation. I have made more acts of faith in this last year than during all the rest of my life. Each time that my enemy would provoke me to combat, I behave as a gallant soldier. I know that a duel is an act of cowardice, and so, without once looking him in the face, I turn my back on the foe. Then I hasten to my Savior and vow that I am ready to shed my blood in witness of my belief in heaven. I tell him, if only he will deign to open it to poor unbelievers, I am content to sacrifice all pleasure in the thought of it as long as I live. And in spite of this trial, which robs me of all comfort, I still can say, Thou hast given me, O Lord, delight in all Thou dost. For what joy can be greater than to suffer for Thy love? The more the suffering is and the less it appears before men, the more is it to Thy honor and glory. Even if, but I know it to be impossible, Thou shouldst not deign to heed my sufferings, I should still be happy to bear them, in the hope that by my tears I might perhaps prevent or atone for one sin against faith. No doubt, dear mother, you will think I exaggerate somewhat the night of my soul. If you judge by the poems I have composed this year, it must seem as though I have been flooded with consolations like a child for whom the veil of faith is almost rent asunder. And yet, it is not a veil. It is a wall which rises to the very heavens and shuts out the starry sky. When I sing of the happiness of heaven and the eternal possession of God, I do not feel any joy therein. 
for I sing only of what I wish to believe. Sometimes, I confess, a little ray of sunshine illumines my dark night, and I enjoy peace for an instant. But later, the remembrance of this ray of light, instead of consoling me, makes the blackness thicker still. And yet, never have I felt so deeply how sweet and merciful is the Lord. He did not send me this heavy cross when it might have discouraged me, but at a time when I was able to bear it. Now it simply takes from me all natural satisfaction I might feel in my longing for heaven. Dear Mother, it seems to me at present there is nothing to impede my upward flight, for I have no longer any desire save to love him until I die. I am free. I fear nothing now, not even what I dreaded more than anything else, a long illness which would make me a burden to the community. Should it please the good God, I am quite content to have my bodily and mental sufferings prolonged for years. I do not fear a long life. I do not shrink from the struggle. The Lord is the rock upon which I stand, who teacheth my hands to fight and my fingers to war. He is my protector and I have hoped in Him. I have never asked God to let me die young. It is true I have always thought I should do so, but it is a favor I have not tried to obtain. End of Part 1 of Chapter 9 The Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux Chapter 9, Part 2 Our Lord is often content with the wish to do something for His glory. And you know the immensity of my desires. You know also that Jesus has offered me more than one bitter chalice through my dearly loved sisters. The holy King David was right when he sang, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But such unity can only exist upon earth in the midst of sacrifice. It was not in order to be with my sisters that I came to this holy Carmel. On the contrary, I knew well that in curbing my natural affection I should have much to suffer. How can it be said that it is more perfect to separate oneself from home and friends? Has anyone ever reproached brothers who fight side by side? Or together win the martyr's palm? It is true, no doubt, that they encourage each other. But it is also true that the martyrdom of each 
is a martyrdom to them all. And so it is in the religious life. Theologians call it a martyrdom. A heart given to God loses nothing of its natural affection. On the contrary, this affection grows stronger by becoming purer and more spiritual. It is with this love, dear mother, that I love you and my sisters. I am glad to fight beside you for the glory of the King of Heaven. But I am ready to go to another battlefield, did the Divine Commander but express a wish. An order would not be necessary. A simple look, a sign, would suffice. Ever since I came to the Carmel, I have thought that if our Lord did not take me quickly to heaven, my lot would be that of Noah's dove, and that one day he would open the window of the ark and bid me fly to heathen lands, bearing the olive branch. This thought has helped me to soar above all created things. Knowing that even in the Carmel there must be partings, I tried to make my abode in heaven, and I accepted not only exile in the midst of an unknown people, but what was far more bitter, I accepted exile from my sisters. And indeed, two of them were asked for by the Carmel of Saigon, our own foundation. For a time there was serious question of their being sent, and I would not say a word to hold them back, though my heart ached at the thought of the trials awaiting them. Now all that is at an end. The superiors were absolutely opposed to their departure, and I only touched the cup with my lips long enough to taste of its bitterness. Let me tell you, dear mother, why, if Our Lady cures me, I wish to respond to the call from our mothers of Hanoi. It appears that to live in foreign Carmels a very special vocation is needed, and many souls think they are called without being so in reality. You have told me that I have this vocation, and that my health alone stands in the way. But if I am destined one day to leave this Carmel, it will not be without a pang. My heart is naturally sensitive, and because this is a cause of much suffering, I wish to offer Jesus whatsoever it can bear. Here I am loved by you and all the sisters, and this love is very sweet to me, and I dream of a convent where I should be unknown, where I should taste the bitterness of exile. I know only too well how useless I am, and so it is not for the sake of the services I might render to the Carmel of Hanoi that I would leave all that is dearest to me. My sole reason would be to do God's will and sacrifice myself for him. And I should not suffer any disappointment, 
For when we expect nothing but suffering, then the least joy is a surprise. And later on, suffering itself becomes the greatest of all joys, when we seek it as a precious treasure. But I know I never shall recover from this sickness, and yet I am at peace. For years I have not belonged to myself. I have surrendered myself wholly to Jesus, and He is free to do with me whatsoever He pleases. He has spoken to me of exile, and has asked me if I would consent to drink of that chalice. At once I essayed to grasp it, but he, withdrawing his hand, showed me that my consent was all that he desired. Oh, my God, how much disquiet do we free ourselves from by the vow of obedience! Happy is the simple religious, her one guide being the will of her superiors. She is ever sure of following the right path, and has no fear of being mistaken even when it seems that her superiors are making a mistake. But if she ceases to consult the unerring compass, then at once her soul goes astray in barren wastes, where the waters of grace continually fail. Dear Mother, you are the compass Jesus has given me to direct me safely to the eternal shore. I find it most sweet to fix my eyes upon you, and then do the will of my Lord. By allowing me to suffer these temptations against faith, he has greatly increased the spirit of faith which makes me see him living in your soul, and through you communicating his holy commands. I am well aware that you lighten the burden of obedience for me, but deep in my heart I feel that my attitude would not change nor would my filial affection grow less were you to treat me with severity. And this because I should still see the will of God manifesting itself in another way for the greater good of my soul. Among the numberless graces that I have received this year, not the least is an understanding of how far-reaching is the precept of charity. I had never before fathomed these words of our Lord. The second commandment is like to the first, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I had set myself above all to love God, and it was in loving Him that I discovered the hidden meaning of these other words. It is not those who say, Lord, Lord, who enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Jesus revealed me this will when at the Last Supper he gave his new commandment in telling his apostles to love one another as he had loved them. 
I set myself to find out how he had loved his apostles. And I saw that it was not for their natural qualities, for they were ignorant men, full of earthly ideas. And yet he calls them his friends, his brethren. And in order to admit them to this kingdom, he wills to die on the cross, saying, Greater love than this no man hath, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. As I meditated on these divine words, I saw how imperfect was the love I bore my sisters in religion. I understood that I did not love them as our Lord loves them. I know now that true charity consists in bearing all our neighbors' defects, not being surprised at their weakness, but edified at their smallest virtues. Above all, I know that charity must not remain shut up in the heart, for no man lighteth a candle and putteth it upon a hidden place or under a bushel, but upon a candlestick, that they who come in may see the light. It seems to me, dear mother, this candle represents that charity which enlightens and gladdens not only those who are dear to us, but all those who are of the household. In the old law, when God told his people to love their neighbor as themselves, he had not yet come down upon earth. And knowing full well how man loves himself, he could not ask anything greater. But when our Lord gave his apostles a new commandment, his own commandment, he was not content with saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, but would have them love even as he had loved, and as he will love till the end of time. Oh, my Jesus, thou dost never ask what is impossible. Thou knowest better than I how frail and imperfect I am, and thou knowest that I shall never love my sisters as thou hast loved them, unless within me thou lovest them. Dear Lord, it is because thou dost desire to grant me this grace that thou hast given a new commandment. Oh, how I love it, since I am assured thereby that it is thy will to love in me all those that thou dost bid me love. Yes, I know when I show charity to others, it is simply Jesus acting in me. And the more closely I am united to him, the more dearly I love my sisters. If I wish to increase this love in my heart, and the devil tries to bring before, before me 
the defects of a sister. I hastened to look for her virtues, her good motives. I call to mind that though I may have seen her fall once, no doubt she has gained many victories over herself, which in her humility she conceals. It is even possible that what seems to me a fault may very likely, on account of her good intentions, be an act of virtue. I have no difficulty persuading myself of this, because I have had the same experience. One day, during recreation, the porteress came to ask for a sister to help her. I had a childish longing to do this work, and it happened the choice fell upon me. I therefore began to fold up our needlework, but so slowly that my neighbor, who I knew would like to take my place, was ready before me. The sister who had asked for help, seeing how deliberate I was, said laughingly, I thought you would not add this pearl to your crown. You are so extremely slow. And all the community thought I had yielded to natural reluctance. I cannot tell you how much profit I derived from this incident, and it made me indulgent toward others. It still checks any feelings of vanity when I am praised, for I reflect that since my small acts of virtue can be mistaken for imperfection, why should not my imperfections be mistaken for virtue? And I say with St. Paul, to me it is a very small thing to be judged by you or by man's day, but neither do I judge myself. He that judgeth me is the Lord. And it is the Lord, it is Jesus, who is my judge. Therefore I shall try always to think leniently of others, that he may judge me leniently. Or rather, not at all, since he says, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. But, returning to the Holy Gospel, where our Lord explains to me clearly in what his new commandment consists. I read in St. Matthew, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, and pray for them that persecute you. There are, of course, no enemies in the Carmel. But after all, we have our natural likes and dislikes. We may feel drawn toward one sister, and may be tempted to go a long way round to avoid meeting another. Well, our Lord tells me that this is the sister to love and pray for, even though her behavior may make me imagine that she does not care for me. If you love them that love you, what thanks are to you? 
for sinners also love those who love them. And it is not enough to love. We must prove our love. Naturally, one likes to please a friend, but that is not charity, for sinners do the same. Our Lord also taught me, Give to everyone that asketh thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. To give to everyone who asks is not so pleasant as to give of one's own accord. If we are asked pleasantly, it is easy to give. But if we are asked discourteously, then unless we are perfect in charity, there is an inward rebellion, and we find no end of excuses for refusing. Perhaps, after first pointing out the rudeness of the request, we make such a favor of consenting thereto, that the slight service takes far less time to perform than was lost in arguing the point. And if it is difficult to give to whosoever asks, it is far more difficult to let what belongs to us be taken without asking it again. Dear Mother, I say this is hard, but I should rather say that it seems hard, for the yoke of the Lord is sweet, and his burden light. And when we do submit to the yoke, we at once feel its sweetness. I have said, Jesus does not wish me to ask again for what is my own. This ought to seem quite easy, for in reality nothing is mine. I ought then to be glad when an occasion arises which brings home to me the poverty to which I am vowed. I used to think myself completely detached, but since our Lord's words have become clear, I see that I am indeed very imperfect. For instance, when starting to paint, if I find the brushes in disorder and a ruler or a penknife gone, I feel inclined to lose patience, and I have to keep a firm hold over myself not to betray my feelings. Of course, I may ask for these needful things, and if I do so humbly, I am not disobeying our Lord's command. I am then like the poor who hold out their hands for the necessaries of life, and if refused are not surprised, for nobody owes them anything. Deep peace inundates the soul when it soars above mere natural sentiments. There is no joy equal to that which is shared by the truly poor in spirit. If they ask with detachment for something necessary, and not only is it refused, but an attempt is made to take away what they already possess, they are following the Master's advice. 
If any man will take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. To give up one's cloak is, it seems to me, to renounce every right, and to regard oneself as the servant, the slave of all. Without a cloak it is easier to walk or run. And so the master adds, And whosoever shall force thee to go one mile, go with him another two. It is therefore not enough for me to give to whoever asks. I ought to anticipate the wish, and show myself glad to be of service. But if anything of mine be taken away, I should show myself glad to be rid of it. I cannot always carry out to the letter the words of the gospel, for there are occasions when I am compelled to refuse some request. Yet when charity is deeply rooted in the soul, it lets itself be outwardly seen. And there is a way of refusing so graciously what one is unable to give, that the refusal affords as much pleasure as the gift would have done. It is true that people do not hesitate to ask from those who readily oblige. Nevertheless, I ought not to avoid importunate sisters on the pretext that I should be forced to refuse. The Divine Master has said, from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. Nor should I be kind in order to appear to be so, or in the hope that the sister will return the service. For once more it is written, If you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thanks are to you? For sinners also lend to sinners, for to receive as much. But you do good and lend, hoping for nothing thereby, and your reward shall be great. Verily, the reward is great even on earth. In this path it is only the first step which costs. To lend without hope of being repaid seems hard. One would rather give outright, for what you give is no longer yours. When a sister says confidently, I want your help for some hours. I have our mother's leave, and be assured I will do as much for you later. One may know well that these hours lent will not be repaid, and be sorely tempted to say, I prefer to give them. But that would gratify self-love, besides letting the sister feel that you do not rely much on her promise. The divine precepts run contrary to our natural inclinations, and without the help of grace it would be impossible to understand them, far less to put them into practice. Dear Mother, I feel that I have expressed myself with more than usual confusion, and I do not know what you can find to interest you in these rambling pages. 
but I am not aiming at a literary masterpiece. And if I weary you by this discourse on charity, it will at least prove your child's good will. I must confess I am far from living up to my ideal. And yet the very desire to do so gives me a feeling of peace. If I fall into some fault, I arise again at once. And for some months now, I have not even had to struggle. I have been able to say with our Holy Father, St. John of the Cross, my house is entirely at peace. And I attribute this interior peace to a victory I gained over myself. Since that victory, the hosts of heaven have hastened to my aid, for they will not allow me to be wounded now that I have fought so valiantly. A holy nun of our community annoyed me in all that she did. The devil must have had something to do with it, and he it was, undoubtedly, who made me see in her so many disagreeable points. I did not want to yield to my natural antipathy, for I remembered that charity ought to betray itself in deeds, and not exist merely in the feelings. So I set myself to do for this sister all that I should do for the one I loved most. Every time I met her, I prayed for her, and offered to God her virtues and merits. I felt that this was very pleasing to our Lord, for there is no artist who is not gratified when his works are praised, and the divine artist of souls is pleased when we do not stop at the exterior, but penetrating to the inner sanctuary he has chosen. Admire its beauty. I did not rest satisfied with praying for this sister, who gave me such occasions for self-mastery. I tried to render her as many services as I could, and when tempted to answer her sharply, I made haste to smile and change the subject. For the imitation of Christ says, It is more profitable to leave everyone to his way of thinking than to give way to contentious discourses. And sometimes, when the temptation was very severe, I would run like a deserter from the battlefield, if I could do so without letting the sister guess my inward struggle. One day she said to me with a beaming face, My dear Sir Therese, tell me what attraction you find in me, for whenever we meet you greet me with such a sweet smile. Ah, what attracted me was Jesus hidden in the depths of her soul. Jesus, who makes sweet even that which is most 
bitter. I spoke just now, dear mother, of the flight that is my last resource to escape defeat. It is not honorable, I confess. But during my novitiate, whenever I had recourse to this means, it invariably succeeded. I will give you a striking example which will no doubt amuse you. You had been ill with bronchitis for several days, and we were all uneasy about you. One morning, in my duty as sacristan, I came to put back the keys of the communion grating. This was my work, and I was very pleased to have an opportunity of seeing you, though I took good care not to show it. One of the sisters, full of solicitude, feared that I should awake you, and tried to take the keys from me. I told her, as politely as I could, that I was quite as anxious as she was that there should be no noise, and added that it was my right to return them. I see now that it would have been more perfect simply to yield, but I did not see it then, and so I followed her into the room. Very soon what she feared came to pass. The noise did awaken you. All the blame fell on me. The sister I had argued with began a long discourse, of which the point was, Sir Therese made all the noise. I was burning to defend myself, but a happy inspiration of grace came to me. I thought that if I began to justify myself I should certainly lose my peace of mind, and as I had too little virtue to let myself be unjustly accused without answering, my last chance of safety lay in flight. No sooner thought than done. I hurried away, but my heart beat so violently I could not go far, and I was obliged to sit down on the stairs to enjoy in quiet the fruit of my victory. This is an odd kind of courage, undoubtedly, but I think that it is best not to expose oneself in the face of certain defeat. When I recall these days of my novitiate, I understand how far I was from perfection, and the memory of certain things makes me laugh. How good God has been to have trained my soul and given it wings. All the snares of the hunter no longer can frighten me, for a net is spread in vain before the eyes of them that have wings. It may be that some day my present state will appear to me full of defects, but nothing now surprises me and I do not even distrust myself because I am so weak. On the contrary, I glory therein, and expect every day to find fresh imperfections. Nay, I must confess, these lights on my own nothingness are more good to my soul than lights on a matters of faith.
remembering that charity covereth a multitude of sins, I draw from this rich mine which our Saviour has opened to us in the Gospels. I search the depths of his adorable words, and cry out with David, I have run in the way of thy commandments, since thou hast enlarged my heart. And charity alone can make wide the heart. O oh, Jesus, since its sweet flame consumes my heart, I run with delight in the way of thy new commandment, and I desire to run therein until that blessed day when, with thy company of virgins, I shall follow thee through thy boundless realm, singing thy new canticle, the canticle of love. End of part two of chapter nine. The Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux. Chapter ten. The New Commandment. Dear Mother, God, in his infinite goodness, has given me a clear insight into the deep mysteries of charity. If I could but express what I know, you would hear heavenly music. But alas, I can only stammer like a child. And if God's own words were not my support, I should be tempted to beg leave to hold my peace. When the Divine Master tells me to give to whosoever asks of me, and to let what is mine be taken without asking it again, it seems to me that he speaks not only of the goods of earth, but also of the goods of heaven. Besides, neither one nor the other are really mine. I renounce the former by the vow of poverty, and the latter gifts are simply lent. If God withdraw them, I have no right to complain. But our very own ideas, the fruit of our minds and heart, form a treasury on which none dare lay hands. For instance, if I reveal to a sister some light given me in prayer, and she repeats it later on as though it were her own, it seems as though she appropriates what is mine. Or if, during recreation, someone makes an apt and witty remark, which her neighbor repeats to the community without acknowledging whence it came, it is a sort of theft. And the person who originated the remark is naturally inclined to seize the first opportunity of delicately insinuating that her thoughts have been borrowed. I could not so well explain all these weaknesses of human nature had I not experienced them. I should have preferred to indulge in the illusion that I was the only one who suffered thus, had you not bidden me advise the novices in their difficulties. 
I have learnt much in the discharge of this duty, and especially I feel bound to put in practice what I teach. I can say with truth that by God's grace I am no more attached to the gifts of the intellect than to material things. If it happens that a thought of mine should please my sisters, I find it quite easy to let them regard it as their own. My thoughts belong to the Holy Ghost. They are not mine. St. Paul assures us that without the spirit of love we cannot call God our Father. And besides, though far from depreciating those beautiful thoughts which bring us nearer to God, I have long been of opinion that we must be careful not to overestimate their worth. The highest inspirations are of no value without good works. It is true that others may derive much profit therefrom, if they are duly grateful to our Lord for allowing them to share in the abundance of one of his privileged souls. But should this privileged soul take pride in spiritual wealth and imitate the Pharisee, she becomes like a hostess dying of starvation at a well-spread table, while her guests enjoy the richest fare, and perhaps cast envious glances at the possessor of so many treasures. Verily, it is true that God alone can sound the heart. How short-sighted are his creatures! When they see a soul whose lights surpass their own, they conclude that the Divine Master loves them less. Since when has he lost the right to make use of one of his children in order to supply the others with the nourishment they need. That right was not lost in the days of Pharaoh. For God said unto him, And therefore have I raised thee, that I may show my power in thee, and my name may be spoken of throughout all the earth. Generations have passed away since the Most High spoke these words, and his ways have not changed. He has ever chosen human instruments for the accomplishment of his work. If an artist's canvas could but think and speak, surely it would never complain of being touched and retouched by the brush, nor would it feel envious thereof, knowing that all its beauty is due to the artist alone. So, too, the brush itself could not boast of the masterpiece it helped to produce. For it must know that an artist is never at a loss, that difficulties do but stimulate him, and that at times it pleases him to make use of instruments the most unlikely and defective. Dear Mother, I am the little brush that Jesus has chosen to paint his likeness in the souls you have confided to my care. Now, an artist has several brushes, 
two at least. The first, which is the most useful, gives the ground tints and rapidly covers the whole canvas. The other and smaller one puts in the lesser touches. Mother, you represent the big brush which our Lord holds lovingly in his hand when he wishes to do some great work in the souls of your children. And I am the little one he deigns to use afterwards to fill in the minor details. The first time the Divine Master took up his little brush was about December 8, 1892. I shall always remember that time as one of special grace. When I entered the Carmel, I found in the novitiate a companion about eight years older than I was. In spite of this difference of age, we became the closest friends, and to encourage an affection which gave promise of fostering virtue, we were allowed to converse together on spiritual subjects. My companion charmed me by her innocence and by her open and frank disposition. Though I was surprised to find how her love for you differed from mine. And besides, I regretted many things in her behavior. But God had already given me to understand that there are souls for whom, in His mercy, He waits unweariedly and to whom he gives his light by degrees. So I was very careful not to forestall him. One day, when I was thinking over the permission we had to talk together, so that we might, as our holy constitutions tells us, incite ourselves more ardently to the love of our divine spouse, it came home to me, sadly, that our conversations did not attain the desired end, and I understood that either I must no longer fear to speak out, or else I must put an end to what was degenerating into mere worldly talk. I begged our Lord to inspire me with words, kind and convincing or better still, to speak himself for me. He heard my prayer. For those who look upon him shall be enlightened, and to the upright a light is risen in the darkness. The first of these texts I apply to myself, the other to my companion, who was truly upright in heart. The next time we met, the poor little sister saw at once that my manner had changed, and blushing deeply, she sat down beside me. I pressed her to my heart and told her, gently, what was in my mind. Then I pointed out to her in what true love consists, and proved that in loving her prioress with such natural affection she was, in reality, loving herself. 
I confided to her the sacrifices of this kind, which I had been obliged to make at the beginning of my religious life, and before long her tears were mingled with mine. She admitted very humbly that she was in the wrong, and that I was right, and begging me as a favor always to point out her faults. She promised to begin a new life. From this time our love for one another became truly spiritual. In us were fulfilled these words of the Holy Ghost, A brother that is helped by his brother is like a strong city. Dear Mother, you know very well that it was not my wish to turn my companion away from you. I only wanted her to grasp that true love feeds on sacrifice, and that in proportion as our souls renounce natural enjoyments, our affections become stronger and more detached. I remember that when I was a postulant, I was sometimes so violently tempted to seek my own satisfaction by having a word with you, that I was obliged to hurry past your cell and hold on to the banisters to keep myself from turning back. Numerous permissions I wanted to ask, and a hundred pretexts for yielding to my desires suggested themselves. But now I am truly glad that I did not listen. I already enjoy the reward promised to those who fight bravely. I no longer feel the need of refusing myself these consolations, for my heart is fixed on God. Because it has loved Him only, it has grown little by little, and now it can give to those who are dear to Him a far deeper and truer love than if it were centered in a barren and selfish affection. I have told you of the first piece of work which you accomplished together with our Lord by means of the little brush, but that was only the prelude to the masterpiece which was afterward to be painted. From the moment I entered the Sanctuary of Souls, I saw at a glance that the task was beyond my strength. Throwing myself without delay into our Lord's arms, I imitated those tiny children who, when they are frightened, hide their faces in their father's shoulder. And I said, Dear Lord, thou seest that I am too small to feed these little ones. But if through me Thou wilt give to each what is suitable. Then fill my hands, and without leaving the shelter of thine arms, or even turning away, I will distribute thy treasures to the souls who come to me asking for food. Should they find it to their taste, I shall know that this is not due to me, but to thee. And if, on the contrary, they find fault with its bitterness. I shall not be cast down, but try to persuade them that it cometh from thee, while taking good care 
to make no change in it. The knowledge that it was impossible to do anything of myself rendered my task easier. My one interior occupation was to unite myself more and more closely to God, knowing that the rest would be given to me over and above. And indeed, my hope has never been deceived. I have always found my hands filled when sustenance was needed for the souls of my sisters. But had I done otherwise, and relied on my own strength, I should very soon have been forced to abandon my task. From afar it seemed so easy to do good to souls, to teach them to love God more, and to model them according to one's own ideas. But when we draw nearer, we quickly feel that without God's help, this is quite as impossible as to bring back the sun when once it has set. We must forget ourselves and put aside our tastes and ideas, and guide souls not by our own way, but along the path which our Lord points out. Even this is not the most difficult part. What costs me more than all is having to observe their faults, their slightest imperfections, and wage war against them. Unhappily for me, I was going to say, <laughs> that would be cowardly. So I will say, happily for my sisters, ever since I placed myself in the arms of Jesus, I have been like a watchman on the lookout for the enemy from the highest turret of a fortified castle. Nothing escapes my vigilance. Indeed, I am sometimes surprised at my own clear-sightedness, and I think that it was quite excusable for the prophet Jonah to fly before the face of the Lord, that he might not have to announce the ruin of Nineveh. Rather than make one single reproach, I would prefer to receive a thousand. Yet I feel that it is necessary that the task should cause me pain. For if I spoke only through natural impulse, then the soul at fault would not understand its defects, and would simply think, hmm, this sister is displeased, and her displeasure falls on me, although I am full of the best intentions. But in this, as in all else, I must practice sacrifice and self-denial. Even in the matter of writing a letter, I feel that it will produce no fruit unless I am disinclined to write, and only do so from obedience. When conversing with a novice, I am on the watch to mortify myself, and I avoid asking questions which would satisfy my curiosity. 
if she begins to speak on an interesting subject, and leaving it unfinished, passes on to another that wearies me, I take care not to remind her of the interruption, for it seems to me that no good can come of self-seeking. I know, dear mother, that your little lambs find me severe. If they were to read these lines, they would say that, as far as they can see, it does not distress me to run after them and show them how they have soiled their beautiful white fleece, or torn it in the brambles. Well, the little lambs may say what they like. In their hearts they know I love them dearly. There is no fear of my imitating the hireling who seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and flieth. I am ready to lay down my life for them and my affection is so disinterested that I would not have my novices know this. By God's help, I have never tried to draw their hearts to myself, for I have always understood that my mission was to lead them to Him and to you, dear mother, who on this earth hold His place in their regard and whom, therefore, they must love and respect. I said before that I have learnt much by guiding others. In the first place, I see that all souls have more or less the same battles to fight, and, on the other hand, that one soul differs widely from another, so that each must be dealt with differently. With some, I must humble myself, and not shrink from acknowledging my own struggles and defeats. Then they confess more readily the faults into which they fall, and are pleased that I know by experience what they suffer. With others, my only means of success is to be firm and never go back on what I have once said. Self-abasement would be taken for weakness. Our Lord has granted me the grace to never fear the conflict. At all costs, I must do my duty. I have more than once been told, If you want me to obey, you must be gentle and not severe, otherwise you will gain nothing. No one is a good judge in his own case. During a painful operation, a child will be sure to cry out and say that the remedy is worse than the disease. But if after a few days he is cured, then he is greatly delighted that he can run about and play. And it is the same with souls. They soon recognize that a little bitter is better than too much sweet, and they are not afraid to make the acknowledgment. Sometimes the change which takes place from one day to the next seems almost magical. 
a novice will say to me, "'You did well to be severe yesterday. "'At first I was indignant, but when I thought it all over, "'I saw that you were quite right. "'I left your cell, thinking, "'Ah, oh, this ends it. "'I shall tell our mother that I shall never go to Sor Therese again.' "'But I knew this was the devil's suggestion, "'and then I felt you were praying for me, "'and I grew calm. "'I began to see things more clearly. "'And now I come to you for further guidance.' I am only too happy to follow the dictates of my heart, and hasten to console with a little sweetness. But I see that one must not press forward too quickly. A word might undo the work that cost so many tears. If I say the least thing which seems to tone down the hard truths of the previous day, I see my little sister trying to take advantage of the opening thus given her. At once I have recourse to prayer. I turn to our Blessed Lady, and Jesus always triumphs. Verily, in prayer and sacrifice lies all my strength. They are my invincible arms. Experience has taught me that they touch hearts far more easily than words. Two years ago, during Lent, a novice came to me, smiling, and said, You would never imagine what I dreamt last night. I thought I was with my sister, who is so worldly, and I wanted to withdraw her from all vain things. To this end, I explain the words of your hymn. They richly lose who love thee, dearest Lord. Thine are my perfumes, thine forevermore. I felt that my words sank deep into her soul, and I was overjoyed. This morning it seems to me that perhaps our Lord would like me to gain him this soul. How would it do? If I wrote at Easter and described my dream, telling her that Jesus desires to have her for his spouse. I answered that she might certainly ask permission. As Lent was not nearly over, you were surprised, dear mother, at such a premature request, and evidently guided by God, you replied that Carmelites should save souls by prayer rather than by letters. When I heard your decision, I said to the little sister, We must set to work and pray hard. If our prayers are answered by the end of Lent, what a joy it will be! Oh, infinite mercy of our Lord! At the close of Lent, one soul more had given herself to God. It was a real miracle of grace, a miracle obtained through the fervor of a humble novice. How wonderful is the power of prayer! It is like unto a queen 
who, having free access to the king, obtains whatsoever she asks. In order to secure a hearing, there is no need to recite set prayers composed for the occasion. <laughs> Were it so, I ought indeed to be pitied. Apart from the divine office, which in spite of my unworthiness is a daily joy, I have not the courage to look through books for beautiful prayers. I only get a headache because of their number, and besides, one is more lovely than the other. Unable, therefore, to say them all, and lost in choice, I do as children who have not learnt to read. I simply tell our Lord all that I want, and He always understands. With me, prayer is an uplifting of the heart, a glance toward heaven, a cry of gratitude and love, uttered equally in sorrow and in joy. In a word, it is something noble, supernatural, which expands my soul and unites it to God. Sometimes, when I am in such a state of spiritual dryness that not a single good thought occurs to me, I say very slowly, The Our Father, or The Hail Mary, and these prayers suffice to take me out of myself and wonderfully refresh me. But what was I speaking of? Again I am lost in a maze of reflections. Forgive me, dear mother, for wandering thus. My story is like a tangled skein, but I fear I can do no better. I write my thoughts as they come. I fish at random in the stream of my heart and offer you everything that I catch. I was telling you about the novices. They often say, you have an answer for everything. This time I thought I should puzzle you. Where do you find all that you teach us? Some are even simple enough to think I read their souls, because at times it happens that I discover to them, without revelation, the subject of their thoughts. The senior novice had determined to hide from me a great sorrow. She spent the night in anguish, keeping back her tears lest her eyes might betray her. She came to me with a smile next day, seeming even more cheerful than usual, and when I said, You are in trouble, I am sure, she looked at me in inexpressible amazement. Her surprise was so great that it reacted on me and imparted a sense of the supernatural. I felt that God was close to us. Unwittingly, for I have not the gift of reading souls. I had spoken as one inspired and was able to console her completely. And now, dear mother, I will tell you 
wherein I gain most with the novices. You know they are allowed without restriction to say anything to me, agreeable or the reverse. <laughs> this is all the easier, since they do not owe me the respect due to a real novice mistress. I cannot say that our Lord makes me walk in the way of exterior humiliation. He is satisfied with humbling me in my inmost soul. In the eyes of creatures, all is success, and I walk in the dangerous path of honor, if a religious may so speak. I understand God's way and that of my superiors in this respect, for if the community thought me incapable, unintelligent, and wanting in judgment, I could be of no possible use to you, dear mother. This is why the Divine Master has thrown a veil over all my shortcomings, both interior and exterior. Because of this veil I receive many compliments from the novices, compliments without flattery, for they really mean what they say. And they do not inspire me with vanity, for the remembrance of my weakness is ever before me. At times my soul tires of this oversweet food, and I long to hear something other than praise. Then our Lord serves me with a nice little salad, well spiced with plenty of vinegar. Oil alone is wanting, and this it is which makes it more to my taste. And this salad is offered to me by the novices at the moment I least expect. God lifts the veil that hides my faults, and my dear little sisters, beholding me as I really am, do not find me altogether agreeable. With charming simplicity, they tell me how I try them and what they dislike in me. In fact, they are as frank as though they were speaking of someone else, for they are aware that I am pleased when they act in this way. I am more than pleased. I am transported with delight by this splendid banquet set before me. How can anything so contrary to our natural inclinations afford such extraordinary pleasure? Had I not experienced it, I could not have believed it possible. One day, when I was ardently longing for some humiliation, a young postulant came to me and sated my desire so completely that I was reminded of the occasion when Shimei cursed David, and I repeated to myself the words of the holy king. Yea, it is the Lord who hath bidden him say all these things. In this way, God takes care of me. He cannot always provide that strength-giving bread, exterior humiliation. But from time to time he allows me to eat of the crumbs from the table of the children. 
How magnificent are his mercies! Dear Mother, since that infinite mercy is the subject of this my earthly song, I ought also to discover to you one real advantage, reaped with many others, in the discharge of my task. Formerly, if I saw a sister acting in a way that displeased me, and was seemingly contrary to the rule, I would think, ah, oh, how glad I should be, if only I could warn her and point out where she is wrong. Since, however, this burden has been laid upon me, my ideas have changed, and when I happen to see something not quite right, I say, with a sigh of relief, Thank God it is not a novice, and I am not obliged to correct her. And at once I try to find excuses, and credit the doer with the good intentions she no doubt possesses. End of Part 1 of Chapter 10 The Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux Chapter 10, Part 2 Your devotedness, dear mother, now that I am ill, has also taught me many a lesson of charity. No remedy is too costly, and if one does not succeed, you unhesitatingly try something new. When I am present at recreation, how careful you are to shield me from draughts! I feel that I ought to be as compassionate for the spiritual infirmities of my sisters as you are for my bodily ills. I have noticed that it is the holiest nuns who are most deeply loved. Everyone is anxious to seek their company and do them service, without even being asked. These very souls who are well able to bear with want of affection and little attentions are always surrounded by an atmosphere of love. Our Father, St. John of the Cross, says with great truth, All good things have come unto me since I no longer sought them for myself. Imperfect souls, on the contrary, are left alone. They are treated, it is true, with the measure of politeness which religious life demands, yet their company is avoided, lest a word might be said which would hurt their feelings. When I say imperfect souls, I am not referring to souls with spiritual imperfections only, for the holiest souls will not be perfect until they are in heaven. I mean those who are also afflicted with want of tact and refinement, as well as ultra-sensitive souls. I know such defects are incurable, but I also know how patient you would be in nursing and striving to relieve me, were my illness to last many years. 
From all this I draw the conclusion. I ought to seek the companionship of those sisters toward whom I feel a natural aversion, and try to be their good Samaritan. A word or a smile is often enough to put fresh life in a despondent soul. And yet it is not merely in the hope of giving consolation that I try to be kind. If it were, I know that I should soon be discouraged, for well-intentioned words are often totally misunderstood. Consequently, not to lose my time or labor, I try to act solely to please our Lord, and follow this precept of the Gospel. When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends or thy brethren, lest perhaps they also invite thee again, and a recompense be made to thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame, and thou shalt be blessed, because they have nothing wherewith to make thee recompense. And thy father, who seeth in secret, will repay thee. What feast can I offer my sisters but a spiritual one of sweet and joyful charity? I know none other. And I wish to imitate St. Paul, who rejoiced with those who rejoiced. It is true that he wept with those who wept, and at my feast, too, the tears must sometimes fall. Still, I shall always try to change them into smiles, for God loveth a cheerful giver. I remember an act of charity with which God inspired me while I was still a novice, and this act, though seemingly small, has been rewarded even in this life by our Heavenly Father, who seeth in secret. Shortly before Sister St. Peter became quite bedridden, it was necessary every evening at ten minutes to six for someone to leave meditation and take her to the refectory. It cost me a good deal to offer my services, for I knew the difficulty or, should I say, the impossibility of pleasing the poor invalid. But I did not want to lose such a good opportunity, for I recalled our Lord's words, As long as you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. I therefore humbly offered my aid. It was not without difficulty that I induced her to accept it. But after considerable persuasion I succeeded. Every evening when I saw her shake her sand-glass, I understood that she meant, Let us go. Summoning up all my courage, I rose, and the ceremony began. First of all, her stool had to be moved and carried in a particular way, and on no account must there be any hurry. 
the solemn procession ensued. I had to follow the good sister, supporting her by her girdle. I did it as gently as possible, but if by some mischance she stumbled, she imagined I had not a firm hold, and that she was going to fall. "'You are going too fast,' she would say. "'I shall fall and hurt myself.' Then, when I tried to lead her more quietly, "'Come quicker. I cannot feel you. You are letting me go. I was right when I said you were too young to take care of me. When we reached the refectory without further mishap, more troubles were in store. I had to settle my poor invalid in her place, taking great pains not to hurt her. Then I had to turn back her sleeves, always according to her special rubric, and after that I was allowed to go. But I soon noticed that she found it very difficult to cut her bread, so I did not leave her till I had performed this last service. She was much touched by this attention on my part, for she had not expressed any wish on the subject. It was by this unsought-for kindness that I gained her entire confidence, and chiefly because as I learnt later, at the end of my humble task, I bestowed upon her my sweetest smile. Dear Mother, it is long since all of this happened, but our Lord allows the memory of it to linger with me, like perfume from heaven. One cold winter evening I was occupied in the lowly work of which I have just spoken, when suddenly I heard in the distance the harmonious strains of music outside the convent walls. I pictured a drawing-room, brilliantly lighted and decorated, and richly furnished. Young ladies, elegantly dressed, exchanged a thousand compliments, as is the way of the world. Then I looked on the poor invalid I was tending. Instead of sweet music, I heard her complaints. Instead of rich gilding, I saw the brick walls of our bare cloister, scarcely visible in the dim light. The contrast was very moving. Our Lord so illuminated my soul with the rays of truth before which the pleasures of the world are as but darkness, that for a thousand years of such worldly delights I would not have bartered even the ten minutes spent in my act of charity. If even now, in days of pain and amid the smoke of battle, the thought that God has withdrawn us from the world is so entrancing. What will it be when, in eternal glory and everlasting repose, we realize the favor beyond compare He has done us here by singling us out to dwell in His Carmel 
the very portal of heaven. I have not always felt these transports of joy in performing acts of charity. But at the beginning of my religious life, Jesus wished to make me feel how sweet to him is charity when found in the hearts of his spouses. Thus, when I led Sister St. Peter, it was with so much love that I could not have shown more were I guiding our divine Lord himself. The practice of charity has not always been so pleasant, as I have just pointed out, dear mother. And to prove it, I will recount some of my many struggles. For a long time my place at meditation was near a sister who fidgeted continually, either with her rosary or with something else. Possibly, as I am very quick of hearing, I alone heard her. But I cannot tell you how much it tried me. I should have liked to turn round and by looking at the offender make her stop the noise. But in my heart I knew that I ought to bear it tranquilly, both for the love of God and to avoid giving pain. So I kept quiet. <laughs> but the effort cost me so much that sometimes I was bathed in perspiration, and my meditation consisted merely in suffering with patience. After a time, I tried to endure it in peace and joy, at least deep down in my soul, and I strove to take actual pleasure in the disagreeable little noise. Instead of trying not to hear it, which was impossible, I set myself to listen as though it had been some delightful music, and my meditation, which was not the prayer of quiet, was passed in offering this music to the Lord. Another time I was working in the laundry, and the sister opposite, while washing handkerchiefs, repeatedly splashed me with dirty water. My first impulse was to draw back and wipe my face, to show the offender that I should be glad if she should behave more quietly. But the next minute I thought how foolish it was to refuse the treasures God offered me so generously, and I refrained from betraying my annoyance. On the contrary, I made such efforts to welcome the shower of dirty water that at the end of half an hour I had taken quite a fancy to this novel kind of aspersion, and I resolved to come as often as I could to the happy spot where such treasures were freely bestowed. Dear Mother, you see that I am a very little soul who can only offer very little things to our Lord. 
it still happens that I frequently let slip the occasion of these slender sacrifices, which bring so much peace. But this does not discourage me. I bear the loss of a little peace, and I try to be more watchful for the future. How happy does our Lord make me, and how sweet and easy is his service on this earth. He has always given me what I desired, or rather, he has made me desire what he wishes to give. A short time before my terrible temptation against faith, I had reflected how few exterior trials worthy of mention had fallen to my lot, and that if I were to have interior trials, God must change my path. And this I did not think he would do. Yet I could not always live at ease. Of what means, then, would he make use? I had not long to wait for an answer, and it showed me that he whom I love is never at a loss, for without changing my way he sent me this great trial, and thus mingled a healing bitterness with all the sweet. End of part two and of chapter ten. The Story of a Soul by Saint Therese of Lisieux. Chapter eleven. A Canticle of Love. It is not only when he is about to send me some trial that our Lord gives me warning and awakens my desire for it. For years I had cherished a longing which seemed impossible of realization, to have a brother, a priest. I often used to think that if my little brothers had not gone to heaven, I should have had the happiness of seeing them at the altar. I greatly regretted being deprived of this joy. Yet God went beyond my dream. I only asked for one brother who would remember me each day at the holy altar, and he has united me in the bonds of spiritual friendship with two of his apostles. I should like to tell you, dear mother, how our Divine Master fulfilled my desire. In 1895, our Holy Mother, St. Teresa, sent my first brother as a gift for my feast. It was washing day, and I was busy at my work, when Mother Agnes of Jesus, then prioress, called me aside and read me a letter from a young seminarian, in which he said, that he had been inspired by St. Teresa to ask for a sister who would devote herself specially to his salvation, and to the salvation of his future flock. He promised 
always to remember this spiritual sister when saying Mass. And the choice fell upon me. Dear Mother, I cannot tell you how happy this made me. Such unlooked-for fulfillment of my desire awoke in my heart the joy of a child. It carried me back to those early days when pleasures were so keen that my heart seemed too small to contain them. Years had passed since I had tasted a like happiness, so fresh, so unfamiliar, as if forgotten chords had been stirred within me. Fully aware of my obligations, I set to work and strove to redouble my fervor. Now and again I wrote to my new brother. Undoubtedly it is by prayer and sacrifice that we can help our missionaries. But sometimes, when it pleases our Lord to unite two souls for His glory, He permits them to communicate their thoughts, and thus inspire each other to love God more. Of course, an express command from authority is needed for this. Otherwise it seems to me that such a correspondence would do more harm than good, if not to the missionary, at least to the Carmelite, whose manner of life tends to continual introversion. This exchange of letters, though rare, would occupy her mind uselessly. Instead of uniting her to God, she would perhaps fancy she was doing wonders, when in reality, under cover of zeal, she was doing nothing but producing needless distraction. Oh, and here am I, launched not upon a distraction, but upon a dissertation equally superfluous. I shall never be able to correct myself of these lengthy digressions, which must be so wearisome to you, dear mother. Forgive me, should I offend again. Last year, at the end of May, it was your turn to give me my second brother. And when I represented that, having given all my merits to one future apostle, I feared they could not be given to another, you told me that obedience would double their value. In the depths of my heart, I thought the same thing. And since the zeal of a Carmelite ought to embrace the whole world, I hope, with God's help, to be of use to even more than two missionaries. I pray for all, not forgetting our priests at home, whose ministry is quite as difficult as that of the missionary preaching to the heathen. In a word, I wish to be a true daughter of the Church, like our Holy Mother St. Teresa, and pray for all the intentions of Christ's Vicar. That is the one great aim of my life. But just as I should have had a special interest in my little brothers had they lived, and that, without neglecting the general interests of the Church, so now I unite myself in a special way to the new brothers 
whom Jesus has given me. All that I possess is theirs also. God is too good to give by halves. He is so rich that he gives me all that I ask for, even though I do not lose myself in lengthy enumerations. As I have two brothers, and my little sisters the novices, the days would be too short if I were to ask in detail for the needs of each soul, and I fear I might forget something important. Simple souls cannot understand complicated methods, and as I am one of their number, our Lord has inspired me with a very simple way of fulfilling my obligations. One day, after Holy Communion, he made me understand these words of the canticles. Draw me, we will run after thee to the odor of thy ointments. Oh, my Jesus, there is no need to say, in drawing me, draw also the souls whom I love. These words, draw me, suffice. When a soul has let herself be taken captive by the inebriating odor of thy perfumes, she cannot run alone. As a natural consequence of her attraction toward thee, the souls of all those she loves are drawn in her train. Just as a torrent carries into the depths of the sea all that it meets on its way, so, my Jesus, does the soul who plunges into the shoreless ocean of thy love bring with it all its treasures. My treasures are the souls it has pleased thee to unite with mine. Thou hast confided them to me, and therefore I do not fear to use thy own words uttered by thee on the last night that saw thee still a traveler on this earth. Jesus, my beloved, I know not when my exile will have an end. Many a night I may yet sing thy mercies here below. But for me also will come the last night, and then I shall be able to say, I have glorified thee upon earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have manifested thy name to the men whom thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and to me thou gavest them and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things which thou hast given me are from thee, because the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they have received them, and have known for certain that I came forth from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. 
I pray not for the world, but for them whom thou hast given me, because they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, and these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we also are one. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I do not ask that thou take them away out of the world, but that thou preserve them from evil. They are not of the world, as I also am not of the world. And not for them only do I pray, but for those also who through their word shall believe in me. Father, I will that where I am, they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me, that they may see my glory which thou hast given me. Because thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world, and I have made known thy name unto them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Yea, Lord, thus would I repeat thy words, before losing myself in thy loving embrace. Perhaps it is daring, but for a long time hast thou not allowed me to be daring with thee? Thou hast said to me, as the prodigal's father to his elder son, All I have is thine. And therefore I may use thy very own words to draw down favors from our heavenly Father on all who are dear to me. My God, Thou knowest that I have ever desired to love Thee alone. It has been my only ambition. Thy love has gone before me, even from the days of my childhood. It has grown with my growth, and now it is an abyss whose depths I cannot fathom. Love attracts love. Mine darts toward thee, and would fain make the abyss brim over. But alas, it is not even as a dewdrop in the ocean. To love thee as thou lovest me, I must make thy love mine own. Thus alone can I find rest. 
O oh, my Jesus, it seems to me that thou couldst not have overwhelmed a soul with more love than thou hast poured out on mine. And that is why I dare ask thee to love those thou hast given me, even as thou lovest me. If in heaven I find that thou lovest them more than thou lovest me, I shall rejoice, for I acknowledge that their deserts are greater than mine. But now I can conceive no love more vast than that with which thou hast favored me, without any merit on my part. <laughs> Dear mother, what I have just written amazes me. I had no intention of writing it. When I said, The words which thou gavest me I have given unto them, I was thinking only of my little sisters in the novitiate. I am not able to teach missionaries, and the words I wrote for them were from the prayer of our Lord. I do not ask that thou shouldst take them out of the world. I pray also for them who through their word shall believe in thee. How could I forget those souls they are to win by their sufferings and exhortations? But I have not told you all my thoughts on this passage of the sacred canticles. Draw me, we will run. Our Lord has said, no man can come to me except the Father who hath sent me. Draw him. And later he tells us that whosoever seeks shall find, whosoever asks shall receive, that unto him who knocks it shall be opened. And he adds that whatever we ask the Father in his name shall be given us. It was no doubt for this reason that long before the birth of our Lord, the Holy Spirit dictated these prophetic words. Draw me, we will run. By asking to be drawn, we desire an intimate union with the object of our love. If iron and fire were endowed with reason, and the iron could say, Draw me! Would not that prove its desire to be identified with the fire to the point of sharing its substance? Well, this is precisely my prayer. I ask Jesus to draw me into the fire of his love and to unite me so closely to himself that he may live and act in me. I feel that the more the fire of love consumes my heart, so much the more shall I say, draw me, and the more also will souls who draw near me run swiftly in the sweet odor of the beloved. Yes, they will run. We shall all run together 
for souls that are on fire can never be at rest. They may indeed, like St. Mary Magdalene, sit at the feet of Jesus, listening to his sweet and burning words. But though they seem to give him nothing, they give much more than St. Martha, who busied herself about many things. It is not Martha's work that our Lord blames, but her over-solicitude. His blessed mother humbly occupied herself in the same kind of work when she prepared the meals for the Holy Family. All the saints have understood this, especially those who have illumined the earth with the light of Christ's teaching. Was it not from prayer that St. Paul, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa, and so many other friends of God drew that wonderful science which has enthralled the loftiest minds? Give me a lever and a fulcrum on which to lean it, said Archimedes, and I will lift the world. What he could not obtain, because his request had only a material end, without reference to God, the saints have obtained in all its fullness. They lean on God Almighty's power itself, and their lever is the prayer that inflames with love's fire. With this lever they have lifted the world. With this lever the saints of the church militant still raise it, and will raise it till the end of time. Dear Mother, I have still to tell you what I understand by the sweet odor of the Beloved. As our Lord is now in heaven, I can only follow him by the footprints he has left. Footprints full of life full of fragrance. I have only to open the Holy Gospels, and at once I breathe the perfume of Jesus. And then I know which way to run. And it is not to the first place, but to the last, that I hasten. I leave the Pharisee to go up, and full of confidence, I repeat the humble prayer of the publican. Above all, I follow Magdalene, for the amazing, rather I should say, the loving audacity that delights the heart of Jesus has cast its spell upon mine. It is not because I have been preserved from mortal sin that I lift up my heart to God in trust and love. I feel that even had I on my conscience every crime one could commit, I should lose nothing of my confidence. My heart broken with sorrow, I would throw myself into the arms of my Savior. I know that he loves the prodigal son. I have heard his words to St. Mary Magdalene, to the woman taken in adultery, and to the woman of Samaria. No one could frighten me, for I know what to believe concerning his mercy and his love, and I know 
that all that multitude of sins would disappear in an instant, even as a drop of water cast into a flaming furnace. It is told in the lives of the fathers of the desert how one of them converted a public sinner whose evil deeds were the scandal of the whole country. This wicked woman, touched by grace, followed the saint into the desert, there to perform rigorous penance. But on the first night of the journey, before even reaching the place of her retirement, the bonds that bound her to earth were broken by the vehemence of her loving sorrow. The holy man, at the same instant, saw her soul borne by angels to the bosom of God. This is a striking example of what I want to say. But these things cannot be expressed. Dearest mother, if weak and imperfect souls like mine felt what I feel, none would despair of reaching the summit of the mountain of love. Since Jesus does not ask for great deeds, but only for gratitude and self-surrender. He says, I will not take the he-goats from out of the flocks, for all the beasts of the forest are mine, the cattle on the hills and the oxen. I know all the fowls of the air. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Shall I eat the flesh of bullocks, or shall I drink the blood of goats? Offer to God the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. This is all our Lord claims from us. He has need of our love. He has no need of our works. The same God who declares that he has no need to tell us if he is hungry, and did not disdain to beg a little water from the Samaritan woman. He was thirsty, but when he said, Give me to drink, he, the creator of the universe, asked for the love of his creature. He thirsted for love. And this thirst of our divine Lord was ever on the increase. Among the disciples of the world he meets with nothing but indifference and ingratitude. And alas, among his own, how few hearts surrender themselves without reserve to the infinite tenderness of his love. Happy are we who are privileged to understand the inmost secrets of our divine spouse. If you, dear mother, would but set down in writing all you know, what wonders could you not unfold? But, like our blessed lady, you prefer to keep all these things in your heart. To me, you say that 
it is honorable to reveal and confess the world of God. Yet you are right to keep silence, for no earthly words can convey the secrets of heaven. End of Part 1 of Chapter 11 The Story of a Soul by St. Therese of Lisieux Chapter 11, Part 2 As for me, in spite of all I have written, I have not as yet begun. I see so many beautiful horizons, such infinitely varied tints, that the palette of the divine painter will alone, after the darkness of this life, be able to supply me with the colors wherewith I may portray the wonders that my soul can make out. Since, however, you have expressed a desire to penetrate into the hidden sanctuary of my heart, and to have in writing what was the most consoling dream of my life, I will end this story of my soul by an act of obedience. If you will allow me, it is to Jesus I will address myself, for in this way I shall speak more easily. You may find my expressions somewhat exaggerated, but I assure you there is no exaggeration in my heart. There all is calm and peace. O oh, my Jesus, who can say how tenderly and gently thou dost lead my soul? The storm had raged there ever since Easter, the glorious feast of thy triumph. Until in the month of May there shone through the darkness of my night one bright ray of grace. My mind dwelt on mysterious dreams sent sometimes to thy favored ones, and I thought how such a consolation was not to be mine, that for me it was night, always the dark night. And in the midst of the storm I fell asleep. The following day, May 10th, just at dawn, I dreamt that I was walking in a gallery alone with our mother. Suddenly, without knowing how they had entered, I saw three Carmelites in mantles and long veils, and I knew that they came from heaven. Ah, I thought, how glad I should be if I could but look on the face of one of these Carmelites. And, as if my wish had been heard, I saw the tallest of the three saints advance toward me. An inexpressible joy took possession of me as she raised her veil and then covered me with it. At once I recognized our venerable mother, Anne of Jesus, foundress of the Carmel in France. Her face was beautiful with an unearthly beauty. 
no rays came from it, and yet, in spite of the thick veil which enveloped us, I could see it suffused by a soft light, which seemed to emanate from her heavenly countenance. She caressed me tenderly, and seeing myself the object of such affection, I made bold to say, Dear Mother, I entreat you, tell me, will our Lord leave me much longer in this world? Will he not soon come to fetch me? She smiled sweetly and answered, Yes, soon, very soon, I promise you. Dear Mother, I asked again, tell me, if he does not want more from me than these poor little acts and desires that I offer him, is he pleased with me? Then our venerable mother's face shone with a new splendor, and her expression became even more gracious. The good God asks no more of you, she said. He is pleased, quite pleased. And taking my head between her hands, she kissed me so tenderly that it would be impossible to describe the joy I felt. My heart was overflowing with gladness, and, remembering my sisters, I was about to beseech some favor for them when, alas, I awoke. My happiness was too great for words. Many months have passed since I had this wonderful dream, and yet its memory is as fresh and delightful as ever. I can still picture the loving smiles of this holy Carmelite, and feel her fond caresses. O oh, Jesus, thou didst command the winds and the storm, and there came a great calm. On waking, I realized that heaven does indeed exist, and that this heaven is peopled with souls who cherish me as their child and this impression still remains with me. All the sweeter, because up to that time I had but little devotion to the venerable Mother Anne of Jesus. I had never sought her help, and but rarely had heard her name. And now I know and understand how constantly I was in her thoughts, and the knowledge adds to my love for her and for all the dear ones in my father's home. Oh, my beloved, this was but the prelude of graces yet greater, which thou didst desire to heap upon me. Let me remind you of them today, and forgive my folly if I venture to tell thee once more of my hopes, and my heart's well-nigh infinite longings. Forgive me, and grant my desire, that it may be well with my soul. To be thy spouse, O my Jesus, to be a daughter of Carmel, and by my union with thee to be the mother of souls, should not all this content me? And yet other vocations make themselves felt. I feel called to the priesthood and to the apostolate, 
I would be a martyr, a doctor of the church. I should like to accomplish the most heroic deeds. The spirit of the crusader burns within me, and I long to die on the field of battle in defense of holy church. The vocation of a priest. With what love, my Jesus, would I bear thee in my hand when my words brought thee down from heaven? With what love would I give thee to souls? And yet, while longing to be a priest, I admire and envy the humility of St. Francis of Assisi, and am drawn to imitate him by refusing the sublime dignity of the priesthood. How reconcile these opposite tendencies? Like the prophets and doctors, I would be a light unto souls. I would travel to every land to preach thy name, O oh, my beloved, and raise on heathen soil the glorious standard of thy cross. One mission alone would not satisfy my longings. I would spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, even to the most distant isles. I would be a missionary not only for a few years, but were it possible, from the beginning of the world till the end of time. Above all, I thirst for the martyr's crown. It was the desire of my earliest days, and the desire has deepened with the years passed in the Carmel's narrow cell. <laughs> but this too is folly, since I do not sigh for one torment. I need them all to slake my thirst. Like thee, O oh adorable spouse, I would be scourged. I would be crucified. I would be flayed like St. Bartholomew, plunged into boiling oil like St. John, or, like St. Ignatius of Antioch, ground by the teeth of wild beasts into a bread worthy of God. With St. Agnes and St. Cecilia, I would offer my neck to the sword of the executioner. And, like Joan of Arc, I would murmur the name of Jesus at the stake. My heart thrills at the thought of the frightful tortures Christians are to suffer at the time of Antichrist, and I long to undergo them all. Open, O Jesus, the book of life in which are written the deeds of thy saints. All the deeds told in that book I long to have accomplished for thee. <sighs> to such folly as this, what answer wilt thou make? Is there on the face of this earth a soul more feeble than mine? And yet, precisely because I am weak, it has delighted thee to accede to my least and most childlike desires. And today, it is thy good pleasure to realize those other desires, more vast than the universe. These aspirations becoming a true martyrdom, I opened one day the epistles of St. Paul to seek relief in my suffering. My eyes fell on the twelfth and thirteenth chapters of the first epistle to the Corinthians. I read, 
that all cannot become apostles, prophets, and doctors, that the church is composed of different members, that the eye cannot also be the hand. The answer was clear, but it did not fulfill my desires or give to me the peace I sought. Then, descending into the depths of my nothingness, I was so lifted up that I reached my aim. Without being discouraged, I read on, and found comfort in this counsel. Be zealous for the better gifts, and I show unto you a yet more excellent way. The Apostle then explains how all perfect gifts are nothing without love, that charity is the most excellent way of going surely to God. At last I had found rest. Meditating on the mystical body of Holy Church, I could not recognize myself among any of its members as described by St. Paul. Or was it not rather that I wished to recognize myself in all? Charity provided me with the key to my vocation. I understood that since the Church is a body composed of different body parts, the noblest and most important of all the organs would not be wanting. I knew that the Church has a heart, that this heart burns with love, and that it is love alone which gives life to its members. I knew that if this love were extinguished, the apostles would no longer preach the gospel, and the martyrs would refuse to shed their blood. I understood that love embraces all vocations, that it is all things, and that it reaches out through all the ages and to the uttermost limits of the earth, because it is eternal. Then, beside myself with joy, I cried out, O oh, Jesus, my love, at last I have found my vocation. My vocation is love. Yes, I have found my place in the bosom of the church, and this place, O oh my God, thou hast thyself given to me. In the heart of the church, my mother, I will be love. Thus I shall be all things. Thus will my dream be realized. Why do I say I am beside myself with joy? This does not convey my thought. Rather, it is peace which has become my portion. The calm peace of the sailor when he catches sight of the beacon which lights him to port. Oh, luminous beacon of love! I know how to come even unto thee. I have found the means of borrowing thy fires. I am but a weak and helpless child, yet it is my very weakness which makes me dare to offer myself, O oh, Jesus, as victim to thy love.
in olden days, pure and spotless holocausts alone were acceptable to the omnipotent God. Nor could his justice be appeased, save by the most perfect sacrifices. But the law of fear has given place to the law of love, and love has chosen me, a weak and imperfect creature, as its victim. Is not such a choice worthy of God's love? Yea, for in order that love may be fully satisfied, it must stoop even unto nothingness, and must transform that nothingness into fire. Oh, my God, I know it. Love is repaid by love alone. Therefore, I have sought, I have found, how to ease my heart by rendering love for love. Use the riches that make men unjust to find you friends who may receive you into everlasting dwellings. This, O Lord, is the advice thou gave to thy disciples after complaining that the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. Child of light as I am, I understood that my desires to be all things and to embrace all vocations were riches that might well make me unjust. So I set to work to use them for the making of friends. Mindful of the prayer of Elisha when he asked the prophet Elias for his double spirit, I presented myself before the company of the angels and saints and addressed them thus. I am the least of creatures. I know my mean estate. But I know that noble and generous hearts love to do good. Therefore, O blessed inhabitants of the celestial city, I entreat you to adopt me as your child. All the glory that you helped me to acquire will be yours. Only deign to hear my prayer and obtain for me a double portion of the love of God. Oh, my God, I cannot measure the extent of my request. I should fear to be crushed by the weight of its audacity. My only excuse is my claim to childhood, and that children do not grasp the full meaning of their words. Yet, if a father or mother were on the throne and possessed vast treasures, they would not hesitate to grant the desires of those little ones more dear to them than life itself. To give them pleasure, they will stoop even unto folly. Well, I am a child of Holy Church, and the Church is a queen, because she is now espoused to the divine King of Kings. I ask not for riches or glory, not even the glory of heaven, 
That belongs by right to my brothers, the angels and saints. And my own glory shall be the radiance that streams from the queenly brow of my mother, the Church. Nay, I ask for love. To love thee, Jesus, is now my only desire. Great deeds are not for me. I cannot preach the gospel or shed my blood. No matter. My brothers work in my stead, and I, a little child, stay close to the throne and love thee for all who are in the strife. But how shall I show my love, since love proves itself by deeds? Well, the little child will strew flowers. She will embrace the divine throne with their fragrance. She will sing love's canticle in silvery tones. Yes, my beloved, it is thus my short life shall be spent in thy sight. The only way I have of proving my love is to strew flowers before thee. That is to say, I will let no tiny sacrifice pass, no look, no word. I wish to profit by the smallest actions, and to do them for love. I wish to suffer for love's sake, and for love's sake even to rejoice. Thus shall I strew flowers. Not one shall I find without scattering its petals before thee. And I will sing, I will sing always, even if my roses must be gathered from amid thorns. And the longer and sharper the thorns, the sweeter shall be my song. But of what avail to thee, my Jesus, are my flowers and my songs? I know it well, this fragrant shower, these delicate petals of little price, these songs of love from a poor heart, like mine, will nevertheless be pleasing unto thee. Trifles they are, but thou wilt smile upon them. The church triumphant, stooping toward her child, will gather up these scattered rose petals, and placing them in thy divine hands, there to acquire an infinite value, will shower them upon the church suffering to extinguish its flames, and on the church militant to obtain its victory. Oh, my Jesus, I love thee. I love my mother, the church. I bear in mind that the least act of pure love is of more value to her than all other works together. But is this pure love really in my heart? Are not my boundless desires just dreams, just foolishness? If this be so, I beseech thee to enlighten me. Thou knowest I seek only the truth. If my desires be rash, 
then deliver me from them, and from this most grievous of all martyrdoms. And yet, I confess, if I do not reach those heights to which my soul aspires, this very martyrdom, this foolishness, will have been sweeter to me than eternal bliss will be, unless by a miracle thou shouldst take from me all memory of the hopes I entertained upon earth. Jesus, Jesus, if the mere desire of thy love awakens such delight, what will it be to possess it, to enjoy it forever? How can a soul so imperfect as mine aspire to the plenitude of love? What is the key of this mystery? O oh, my only friend, why dost thou not reserve these infinite longings to lofty souls, to the eagles that soar in the heights? Alas! I am but a poor little unfledged bird. I am not an eagle. I have but the eagle's eyes and heart. Yet, notwithstanding my exceeding littleness, I dare to gaze upon the divine Son of Love, and I burn to dart upwards to him. I would fly, I would imitate the eagles. But all that I can do is lift up my little wings. It is beyond my feeble power to soar. What is to become of me? Must I die of sorrow because of my helplessness? Oh no, I will not even grieve. With daring self-abandonment, I will remain there until death my gaze fixed upon that divine sun. Nothing shall frighten me, neither wind nor rain. And should impenetrable clouds conceal the orb of love, and should I seem to believe that beyond this life there is only darkness, that would be the hour of perfect joy the hour in which to push my confidence to its uttermost bounds. I should not dare to detach my gaze, knowing well that beyond the dark clouds the sweet sun still shines. So far, O oh my God, I understand thy love for me. Thou knowest how often I forget this, my only care. I stray from thy side, and my scarcely fledged wings become bedraggled in the muddy pools of earth. Then I lament like a young swallow, and my lament tells thee all. And I remember, O infinite mercy, that thou didst not come to call the just but sinners. Yet, shouldst thou still be deaf to the plaintive cries of thy feeble creature, 
shouldst thou still be veiled, then I am content to remain, benumbed with cold, my wings bedraggled, and once more I rejoice in this well-deserved suffering. O oh, son, my only love, I am happy to feel myself so small, so frail in thy sunshine, and I am in peace. I know that all the eagles of thy celestial court have pity on me. They guard and defend me. They put to flight the vultures, the demons that fain would devour me. I do not fear them, these demons. I am not destined to be their prey, but the prey of the divine eagle. O oh, eternal word, O oh, my Savior, thou art the divine eagle whom I love, who lurest me. Thou, who descending to this land of exile, didst will to suffer and to die, in order to bear away the souls of men and plunge them into the very heart of the blessed trinity, love's eternal home. Thou, who, reascending into inaccessible light, dost still remain concealed here in our veil of tears under the snow-white semblance of the host, and this, to nourish me with thine own substance, O oh, Jesus, forgive me if I tell thee that thy love reacheth even unto folly. And in the face of this folly, what would thou have me do but that my heart leap up to thee? How could my trust have any limits? I know that the saints have made themselves as fools for thy sake. Being eagles, they have done great things. I am too little for great things, and my folly it is to hope that thy love accepts me as victim. My folly it is to count on the aid of angels and saints, in order that I may fly unto thee with thine own wings, O my divine eagle. For as long a time as thou willest, I shall remain, my eyes fixed upon thee. I long to be allured by thy divine eyes. I would become love's prey. I have the hope that thou wilt one day stoop down upon me, and bearing me away to the source of all love, thou wilt plunge me at last into that glowing abyss that I may become forever its happy victim. O oh, Jesus, would that I could tell all little souls of thine ineffable condescension. I feel that if by any possibility thou couldst find one weaker than my own, thou wouldst take delight in loading her with still greater favors provided that she abandoned herself with entire confidence to thine infinite mercy. <laughs> but, O oh, my spouse, 
why these desires of mine to make known the secrets of thy love? Is it not thyself alone who hast taught them to me? And canst thou not unveil them to others? Yes, I know it, and for this I implore thee, I entreat thee to let thy divine eyes rest upon a vast number of little souls. I entreat thee to choose in this world a legion of little victims of thy love. Notes The Venerable Mother Anne of Jesus in the world, Anne of Lobera, was born in Spain in 1545. She entered the Carmelite order in 1570, in the first convent of St. Joseph of Avila, and shortly afterwards became the counselor and coadjutor of St. Teresa, who called her her daughter and her crown. St. John of the Cross, who was her spiritual director for fourteen years, described her as a seraph incarnate, and her prudence and sanctity were held in such esteem that the most learned men consulted her in their doubts, and accepted her answers as oracles. She was always faithful to the spirit of St. Teresa, and had received from heaven the mission to restore the Carmel to its primitive perfection. Having founded three convents of the Reform in Spain, she established one in France and another in Belgium. She died in the odor of sanctity in the Carmel of Brussels on March 4, 1621. On May 3, 1878, His Holiness Pope Leo XIII signed the decree introducing the cause of her beatification. End of chapter 11 Epilogue by A Prioress of the Carmel, which I think means Pauline, A Victim of Divine Love. Many pages of this story, said its writer, will never be read upon earth. It is necessary to repeat and emphasize her words. There are sufferings which are not to be disclosed here below. Our Lord has jealously reserved to himself the right to reveal their merit and glory, in the clear vision where all veils shall be removed. My God, she cried on the day of her religious profession, give me martyrdom of soul or body, or rather give me both the one and the other. And our Lord, who, as she herself avowed, fulfilled all her desires, granted this one also, and in more abundant measure than the rest. He caused the floods of infinite tenderness pent up in his divine heart to overflow into the soul of his little spouse. This was the martyrdom of love so well described in her melodious song. But it was her own doctrine that to dedicate oneself as a victim of love is not to be dedicated to sweetness and consolations. 
It is to offer oneself to all that is painful and bitter, because love lives only by sacrifice. Ellipsis. And the more we would surrender ourselves to love, the more we must surrender ourselves to suffering. Therefore, because she desired to attain the loftiest height of love, the Divine Master led her thither by the rugged path of sorrow, and it was only on its bleak summit that she died a victim of love. We have seen how great was her sacrifice in leaving her happy home and the father who loved her so tenderly. It may be imagined that this sacrifice was softened because at the Carmel she found again her two elder and dearly loved sisters. On the contrary, this afforded the young postulant many an occasion for repressing her strong natural affections. The rules of solitude and silence were strictly observed, and she only saw her sisters at recreation. Had she been less mortified, she might often have sat beside them, but by preference she sought out the company of those religious who were least agreeable to her. And no one could tell whether or not she bore a special affection toward her own sisters. Sometime after her entrance she was appointed as aide to Sister Agnes of Jesus, her dear Pauline. This was a fresh occasion for sacrifice. Therese knew that all unnecessary conversation was forbidden, and therefore she never allowed herself even the least word. Oh, my little mother, she said later, how I suffered. I could not open my heart to you, and I thought you no longer knew me. After five years of this heroic silence, Sister Agnes of Jesus was a reelected prioress. On the evening of the election, Therese might well have rejoiced that henceforth she could speak freely to her little mother and, as of old, pour out her soul. But sacrifice had become her daily food. If she sought one favor more than another, it was that she might be looked on as the lowest and the least. And among all the religious, not one saw less of the mother prioress. She desired to live the life of Carmel with all the perfection required by St. Teresa. And though a martyr to habitual dryness, her prayer was continuous. On one occasion, a novice entering her cell was struck by the heavenly expression of her countenance. She was sewing industriously and yet seemed lost in deep contemplation. "'What are you thinking of?' the young sister asked. I am meditating on the Our Father, Therese answered. It is so sweet to call God Our Father. And tears glistened in her eyes. Another time, she said, I cannot well see what more I shall have in heaven than I have now. I shall see God, it is true, but as to being with him, I am that already, even on earth. The flame of divine love consumed her, and this is what she herself relates. 
A few days after the oblation of myself to God's merciful love, I was in the choir, beginning the way of the cross, when I felt myself suddenly wounded by a dart of fire so ardent that I thought I should die. I do not know how to explain this transport. There is no comparison to describe the intensity of that flame. It seemed as though an invisible force plunged me wholly into fire. But, oh, what fire! What sweetness! When Mother Prioress asked her if this rapture was the first she had experienced, she answered simply, Dear Mother, I have had several transports of love, and one in particular during my novitiate, when I remained for a whole week far removed from this world. It seemed as though a veil were thrown over all earthly things. But I was not then consumed by a real fire. I was able to bear those transports of love without expecting to see the ties that bound me to earth gave way. Whilst on the day of which I now speak, one minute, one second more, and my soul must have been set free. Alas, I found myself again on earth, and dryness at once returned to my heart. True, the divine hand had withdrawn the fiery dart, but the wound was unto death. In that close union with God, Therese acquired a remarkable mastery over self. All sweet virtues flourished in the garden of her soul, but do not let us imagine that these wondrous flowers grew without effort on her part. In this world there is no fruitfulness without suffering, either physical pain, secret sorrow, or trials known sometimes only to God. When good thoughts and generous resolutions have sprung up in our souls through reading the lives of the saints, we ought not to content ourselves, as in the case of profane books, with paying a certain tribute of admiration to the genius of their authors. We should rather consider the price which, doubtless, they have paid for that supernatural good they have produced. A quote from Dom Garanger. And if today... Therese transforms so many hearts, and the good she does on earth is beyond reckoning. We may well believe she bought it all at the price with which Jesus bought back our souls, by suffering and the cross. Not the least of these sufferings was the unceasing war she waged against herself refusing every satisfaction to the demands of her naturally proud and impetuous nature. While still a child, she had acquired the habit of never excusing herself or making a complaint. At the Carmel she strove to be the little servant of her sisters in religion, and in that same spirit of humility she endeavored to obey all without distinction. One evening, during her illness, the community had assembled in the garden to sing a hymn before an altar of the Sacred Heart. Sœur Thérèse, who was already ready wasted by fever, joined them with difficulty, and arriving quite exhausted, was obliged to sit down at once. When the hymn began, one of the sisters made her a sign to stand up. Without hesitation, 
the humble child rose, and in spite of the fever and great oppression from which she was suffering, remained standing to the end. The infirmarian had advised her to take a little walk in the garden for a quarter of an hour each day. This recommendation was to her a command. One afternoon a sister, noticing what an effort it cost her, said, "'Sir Therese, you would do much better to rest. Walking like this cannot do you any good. You only tire yourself.' "'That is true,' she replied. "'But do you know what gives me strength? I offer each step for some missionary. I think that possibly, over there, far away, one of them is weary and tired in his apostolic labors.' and to lessen his fatigue, I offer mine to the good God." She gave her novices some beautiful examples of detachment. One year the relations of the sisters and the servants of the convent had sent bouquets of flowers for Mother Prioress's feast. Therese was arranging them most tastefully, when a lay sister said crossly, it is easy to see that the large bouquets have been given by your friends. I suppose those sent by the poor will again be put in the background." A sweet smile was the only reply, and notwithstanding the unpleasing effect, she immediately put the flowers sent by the servants in the most conspicuous place. Struck by admiration, the lay-sister went at once to the prioress to accuse herself of her unkindness, and to praise the patience and humility shown by Sœur Thérèse. After the death of Thérèse, that same sister, full of confidence, pressed her forehead against the feet of the saintly nun, once more asking forgiveness for her fault. At the same instant she felt herself cured of cerebral anemia from which she had suffered for many years, and which had prevented her from applying herself either to reading or mental prayer. Cerebral anemia means a reduced blood flow to the brain. Far from avoiding humiliations, Sœur Thérèse sought them eagerly, and for that reason she offered herself as aid to a sister whom she well knew was difficult to please, and her generous proposal was accepted. One day, when she had suffered much from this sister, a novice asked her why she looked so happy. Great was her surprise on receiving the reply, "'It is because Sister N. has just been saying disagreeable things to me. What pleasure she has given me! I wish I could meet her now and give her a sweet smile!' As she was still speaking, the sister in question knocked at the door and the astonished novice could see for herself how the saints forgive. Sœur Thérèse acknowledged later on she soared so high above earthly things that humiliations did but make her stronger. To all these virtues she joined a wonderful courage. From her entrance into the Carmel at the age of fifteen she was allowed to follow all the practices of its austere rule the fasts alone excepted. Sometimes her companions in the novitiate, seeing how pale she looked, 
tried to obtain a dispensation for her, either from the night office or from rising at the usual hour in the morning. But the mother prioress would never yield to these requests. A soul of such metal, she would say, ought not to be dealt with as a child. Dispensations are not meant for her. Let her be, for God sustains her. Besides, if she is really ill, she should come and tell me herself. This was Mother Mary of Gonzaga. She died December 17, 1904, at the age of 71. Mother Agnes of Jesus, Pauline, was at that time prioress. The former, herself of the line of St. Anthony of Padua, recognized in Sor Therese an heroic soul filled with holiness and capable of becoming one day an excellent prioress. With this end in view, she trained her with a strictness for which the young saint was most grateful. In the arms of Mother Mary of Gonzaga, the little flower of Jesus was welcomed to the Carmel, and in those arms she died. Happy, she declared, not to have in that hour as superioress her little mother, in order the better to exercise her spirit of faith in authority. But it was always a principle with Therese that we should go to the end of our strength before we complain. How many times did she assist at matins, suffering from vertigo or violent headaches? I am able to walk, she would say, and so I ought to be at my duty. And thanks to this undaunted energy, she performed acts that were heroic. It was with difficulty that her delicate stomach accustomed itself to the frugal fare of the Carmel. Certain things made her ill, but she knew so well how to hide this that no one ever suspected it. Her neighbor at table said that she had tried in vain to discover the dishes that she preferred, and the kitchen sisters, finding her so easy to please, invariably served her with what was left. It was only during her last illness, when she was ordered to say what disagreed with her, that her mortifications came to light. "'When Jesus wishes us to suffer,' she said at that time, "'there can be no evading it. And so, when Sister Mary of the Sacred Heart was procuratrix—that was Marie—she endeavored to look after me with a mother's tenderness. To all appearances I was well cared for. And yet, what mortifications did she not impose upon me? For she served me according to her own taste, which was entirely opposed to mine. Therese's spirit of sacrifice was far-reaching. She eagerly sought what was painful and disagreeable as her rightful share. All that God asked she gave him, without hesitation or reserve. During my postulancy, she said, it cost me a great deal to perform certain exterior penances customary in our convents, but I never yielded to these repugnances. It seemed to me that the image of my crucified Lord looked at me with beseeching eyes and begged these sacrifices. Her vigilance was so keen that she never left unobserved 
any little recommendations of the mother prioress, or any of the small rules which rendered the religious life so meritorious. One of the old nuns, having remarked her extraordinary fidelity on this point, ever afterward regarded her as a saint. Sor Therese was accustomed to say that she never did any great penances. That was because her fervor counted as nothing, the few that were allowed her. It happened, however, that she fell ill through wearing for too long a time a small iron cross studded with sharp points that pressed into her flesh. Such a trifle would not have caused this, she said afterwards, if God had not wished thus to make me understand that the greater austerities of the saints are not meant for me nor for the souls that walk in the path of spiritual childhood. The souls that are the most dear to my father, our Lord once said to St. Teresa, are those he tries the most, and the greatness of their trials is the measure of his love. Therese was a soul most dear to God, and he was about to fill up the measure of his love by making her pass through a veritable martyrdom. The reader will remember the call on Good Friday, April 3rd, 1896, when, to use her own expression, she heard the distant murmur which announced the approach of the bridegroom. But she had still to endure long months of pain before the blessed hour of her deliverance. On the morning of that Good Friday, she made so little of the hemorrhage of the previous night that Mother Prioress allowed her to practice all the penances prescribed by the rule for that day. In the afternoon a novice saw her cleaning windows. Her face was lividly pale, and in spite of her great energy it was evident that her strength was almost spent. Seeing her fatigue, the novice, who loved her dearly, burst into tears and begged leave to obtain her some little reprieve. But the young novice mistress strictly forbade her, saying that she was quite able to bear this slight fatigue on the day on which Jesus had suffered and died. Soon a persistent cough made the mother prioress feel anxious. She ordered Sor Therese a more strengthening diet, and the cough ceased for some time. "'Truly, sickness is too slow a liberator,' exclaimed our dear little sister. "'I can only rely upon love.' She was strongly tempted to respond to the appeal of the Carmelites of Hanoi, who much desired to have her, and began a novena to the venerable Theophon Venard to obtain her cure. But alas, that novena proved but the beginning of a more serious phase of her malady. Like her divine master, she passed through the world doing good. Like him, she had been forgotten and unknown, and now, still following in his footsteps, she was to climb the hill of Calvary. Accustomed to see her always suffering, yet always joyous and brave, Mother Prioress, doubtless inspired by God, allowed her to take part in the community exercises, some of which tired her extremely. 
At night she would courageously mount the stairs alone, pausing at each step to take a breath. It was with difficulty that she reached her cell, and then in so exhausted a state that sometimes, as she avowed later, it took her quite an hour to undress. After all this exertion, it was upon a hard pallet that she took her rest. Her nights, too, were very bad, and when asked if she would not like someone to be near her in her hours of pain, she replied, Oh, no! On the contrary, I am only too glad to be in a cell away from the sisters, that I may not be heard. I am content to suffer alone. As soon as I am pitied and loaded with attentions, my happiness leaves me. What strength of soul these words betray! Where we find sorrow, she found joy. What to us is hard to bear, being overlooked and ignored by creatures, became to her a source of delight. And her divine spouse knew well how to provide that bitter joy she found so sweet. Painful remedies often had to be applied. One day when she had suffered from them more than usual, she was resting in her cell during recreation, and overheard a sister in the kitchen speaking of her thus. Sore Therese will not live long, and really, sometimes, I wonder what our mother prioress will find to say about her when she dies. She will be sorely puzzled, for this little sister, amiable as she is, has certainly never done anything worth speaking about. The infirmarian, who had also overheard the remark, turned to Therese and said, "'If you relied upon the opinion of creatures, you would indeed be disillusioned to-day.' "'The opinion of creatures?' she replied. "'Happily, God has given me the grace to be absolutely indifferent to that. Let me tell you something which showed me once and for all how much it is worth. A few days after my clothing, I went to our dear mother's room, and one of the sisters who happened to be there said on seeing me, "'Dear mother, this novice certainly does you credit. How well she looks! I hope she may be able to observe the rule for many years to come.' I was feeling decidedly pleased at this compliment, when another sister came in and, looking at me, said, "'Poor little sore Therese! How very tired you seem!' you will not be able to keep the rule very long. I was then only sixteen, but this little incident made such an impression on me that I never again set store on the varying opinion of creatures. On another occasion, someone remarked, It is said that you have never suffered much. Smiling, she pointed at a glass containing medicine of a bright red color. "'You see this little glass?' she said. "'One would suppose that it contained a most delicious draught, "'whereas in reality it is more bitter than anything else I take. "'This is the image of my life. "'To others it has been all rose-color. "'They have thought that I continually drank of a most delicious wine. "'And yet to me it has been full of bitterness.' I say bitterness, and yet my life has not been a bitter one, 
for I have learned to find my joy and sweetness in all that is bitter. You are suffering very much just now, are you not? Yes, but then I have so longed to suffer. How it distresses us to see you in such pain, and to think that it may increase, said her novices. Oh, do not grieve about me. I have reached a point where I can no longer suffer, because all suffering is become so sweet. Besides, it is quite a mistake to trouble yourselves as to what I may still have to undergo. It is like meddling with God's work. We who run in the way of love must never allow ourselves to be disturbed by anything. If I did not simply live from one moment to another, it would be impossible for me to be patient. But I only look at the present. I forget the past, and I take good care not to forestall the future. When we yield to discouragement or despair, it is usually because we think too much about the past and the future. But pray much for me, for it is often just when I cry to heaven for help that I feel most abandoned. How do you manage to not give way to discouragement at such times? I turn to God and all his saints, and thank them notwithstanding. I believe they want to see how far my trust may extend. But the words of Job have not entered my heart in vain. Even if God should kill me, I would still trust in him. I own it has taken a long time to arrive at this degree of self-abandonment, but I have reached it now, and it is the Lord himself who has brought me there. Another time, she said, Our Lord's will fills my heart to the brim, and hence, if anything else is added, it cannot penetrate to any depth, but like oil on the surface of limpid waters, glides easily across. If my heart were not already brimming over, and must needs be filled by the feelings of joy and sadness that alternate so rapidly, then indeed would it be flooded by a wave of bitter pain. But these quick succeeding changes scarcely ruffle the surface of my soul, and in its depths there reigns a peace that nothing can disturb. Notes The Blessed Theophon Venard was born at St. Loup, in the Diocese of Poitiers, on the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lady, November 21, 1829. He was martyred at Kecho, Tonkin, on the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord, February 2, 1861, at the age of 32. A long and delightful correspondence with his family begun in his college days and completed from his cage at Quecho, reveals a kinship of poesy, as well as of sanctity and of the love of home, between the two spring flowers. The beauty of his soul was so visible in his boyish face that he was spared all torture during his two months in the cage. In 1909, the year in which Therese became servant of God, by the commencement of the Episcopal process. Her patron, 
received the honors of beatification. Another child of France, Joan, its martyr-maid, whose praises have been sung in affectionate verse by the saints of St. Luke and Lucieux, was beatified that same year. Uh, what the prioress will say? An allusion to the obituary notice sent to each of the French Carmels when a Carmelite nun dies in that country. In the case of those who die in the odor of sanctity, these notices sometimes run to considerable length. Four obituary notices issued from the Carmel of Vissue are of great interest to the clients of Sœur Thérèse, and are in the course of publication at the Orphan's Press, Rockdale. Those of the Carmel's saintly foundress, Mother Genevieve of St. Teresa, whose death is referred to in Chapter 8, Mother Mary of Gonzaga, the prioress of Thérèse, Sister Mary of the Eucharist, Marie Guerin, the cousin of Thérèse, Chapter 3, and, most interesting of all, the long sketch, partly autobiographical, of Mother Mary of St. Angelus, Marie-Ange, the trophy of Thérèse, brought by her intercession to the Carmel in 1902, where the writer made her acquaintance in the following spring. She became prioress in 1908, dying eighteen months later in the odor of sanctity, aged only twenty-eight. By the editor, T.N. Taylor. End of Part One of the Epilogue The Story of a Soul Epilogue Part Two And yet her soul was enveloped in thick darkness, and her temptations against faith ever conquered, but ever returning, were there to rob her of all feeling of happiness at the thought of her approaching death. Were it not for this trial, which is impossible to understand, she would say, I think I should die of joy at the prospect of soon leaving this earth. By this trial, the Divine Master wished to put the finishing touches to her purification, and thus enable her not only to walk with rapid steps, but to run in her little way of confidence and abandonment. Her words repeatedly proved this. I desire neither death nor life. Were our Lord to offer me his, my choice, I would not choose. I only will what he wills. It is what he does that I love. I do not fear the last struggle, nor any pains, however great, my illness may bring. God has always been my help. He has led me by the hand from my earliest childhood, and on him I rely. My agony may reach the furthest limits, but I am convinced he will never forsake me. Such confidence in God, of necessity stirred the fury of the devil, of him who at life's close tries every ruse to sow the seeds of despair in the hearts of the dying. Last night I was seized with a terrible feeling of anguish, she confessed to Mother Agnes of Jesus on one occasion. 
I was lost in darkness, and from out of it came an accursed voice. Are you certain God loves you? Has he himself told you so? The opinion of creatures will not justify you in his sight. These thoughts had long tortured me. When your little note, like a message from heaven, was brought to me, you recalled to me, dear mother, the special graces Jesus had lavished upon me, and, as though you had had a revelation concerning my trial, you assured me that I was deeply loved by God, and was on the eve of receiving from his hands my eternal crown. Immediately peace and joy were restored to my heart. Yet the thought came to me, it is my little mother's affection that makes her write these words. Straightway I felt inspired to take up the Gospels, and opening the book at random, I lighted on a passage which had hitherto escaped me. He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Then I fell asleep, fully consoled. It was you, dear mother, whom the good God sent me, and I must believe you because you speak the words of God. For several days during the month of August, Therese remained, so to speak, beside herself, and implored that prayers might be offered for her. She had never before been seen in this state, and in her inexpressible anguish she kept repeating, Oh, how necessary it is! to pray for the agonizing, if one only knew. One night she entreated the infirmarian to sprinkle her bed with holy water, saying, I am besieged by the devil. I do not see him, but I feel him. He torments me and holds me with a grip of iron that I may not find one crumb of comfort. He augments my woes, that I may be driven to despair. And I cannot pray. I can only look at our Blessed Lady and say, Jesus! How needful is that prayer we use at Compline. Procur recedant somnia et noctium phantasmata. Free us from the phantoms of the night. Something mysterious is happening within me. I am not suffering for myself, but for some other soul. And Satan is angry. The infirmarian, startled, lighted a blessed candle, and the spirit of darkness fled, never to return. But the sufferer remained to the end in a state of extreme anguish. One day, while she was contemplating the beautiful heavens, someone said to her, Soon your home will be there, beyond the blue sky. How lovingly you gaze at it! She only smiled, 
but afterwards she said to the mother prioress, Dear mother, the sisters do not realize my sufferings. Just now, when looking at the sky, I merely admired the beauty of the material heaven. The true heaven seems more than ever closed against me. At first their words troubled me, but an interior voice whispered, Yes, you were looking up to heaven out of love. Since your soul is entirely delivered up to love, all your actions, even the most indifferent, are marked with this divine seal. At once I was consoled. In spite of the darkness which enveloped her, her divine Savior sometimes left the door of her prison ajar. Those were moments in which her soul lost itself in transports of confidence and love. Thus it happened that on a certain day, when walking in the garden, supported by one of her own sisters, she stopped at the charming spectacle of a hen sheltering its pretty little ones under its wing. Her eyes filled with tears, and turning to her companion, she said, I cannot remain here any longer. Let us go in. And even when she reached her cell, her tears continued to fall, and it was some time before she could speak. At last she looked at her sister with a heavenly expression, and said, I was thinking of our Lord, and the beautiful comparison he chose in order to make us understand his ineffable tenderness. This is what he has done for me all the days of my life. He has completely hidden me under his wing. I cannot express all that has just stirred my heart. It is well for me that God conceals himself and lets me see the effects of his mercy, but rarely, and as it were, from behind the lattices. Were it not so, I could never bear such sweetness. Disconsolate at the prospect of losing their treasure, the community began a novena to Our Lady of Victories on June 5, 1897, in the fervent hope that she would, once again, miraculously raise the drooping little flower. But her answer was the same as that given by the blessed martyr Theophon Venard and they were forced to accept with generosity the bitterness of the coming separation. At the beginning of July her state became very serious, and she was at last removed to the infirmary. Seeing her empty cell, and knowing she would never return to it, Mother Agnes of Jesus said to her, When you are no longer with us, how sad I shall feel when I look at this cell. For consolation, little mother, you can think how happy I am up there, and remember that much of my happiness was acquired in that little cell. For, she added, raising her beautiful eyes to heaven, I have suffered so much there, and I should have been happy to die there. As she entered the infirmary, she looked toward the miraculous statue of Our Lady which had been brought thither. 
it would be impossible to describe that look. "'What is it you see?' said her sister Marie, the witness of her miraculous cure as a child. And Therese answered, "'Never has she seemed to me so beautiful.' But today it is the statue, whereas that other day, as you well know, it was not the statue. And from that time she often received similar consolations. One evening she exclaimed, Oh, how I love our blessed lady! Had I been a priest, how I would have sung her praises! She is spoken of as unapproachable whereas she should be represented as easy of imitation. She is more mother than queen. I have heard it said that her splendor eclipses that of all the saints, as the rising sun makes all the stars disappear. It sounds so strange that a mother should take away the glory of her children. I think quite the reverse. I believe that she will greatly increase the splendor of the elect. Our mother, Mary. Oh, how simple her life must have been. And continuing her discourse, she drew such a sweet and delightful picture of the Holy Family that all present were lost in admiration. A very heavy cross awaited her before going to join her spouse. From August 16th to September 30th, the happy day of her death, she was unable to receive Holy Communion because of her continual sickness. Few have hungered for the bread of angels like this seraph of earth. Again and again during that last winter of her life, after nights of intolerable pain, she rose at early morn to partake of the manna of heaven, and she thought no price too heavy to pay for the bliss of feeding upon God. Before depriving her altogether of this heavenly food, our Lord often visited her on her bed of pain. Her communion on July 16th, the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, was specially touching. During the previous night she composed some verses which were to be sung before communion. Thou know'st the baseness of my soul, O Lord, yet fearest not to stoop and enter me. Come to my heart, O sacrament adored, Come to my heart, it craveth but for thee. And when thou comest, straightway let me die, Of very love for thee, this boon impart. O hearken, Jesus, to my suppliant cry, Come to my heart. In the morning, when the holy viaticum Was carried to the infirmary, The cloisters were thickly strewn with wild flowers and rose petals. A young priest who was about to say his first mass that day in the chapel of the Carmel bore the blessed sacrament to the dying sister, and at her desire Sister Mary of the Eucharist, whose voice was exceptionally sweet, sang the following couplet. Sweet martyrdom to die of love's keen fire the martyrdom of which my heart is fain. Hasten, ye cherubim, to tune your lyre. I shall not linger long in exile's pain. 
ellipsis. Fulfill my dream, O Jesus, since I sigh of love to die. A few days later, Therese grew worse, and on July the 30th she received extreme unction, anointing of the sick. Radiant with delight, the little victim of love said to us, The door of my dark prison is ajar. I am steeped in joy, especially since our Father Superior has assured me that today my soul is like unto that of a little child after baptism. No doubt she thought she was quickly to join the white-robed band of the Holy Innocents. She little knew that two long months of martyrdom had still to run their course. Dear Mother, she said, I entreat you, give me leave to die. Let me offer my life for such and such an intention, naming it to the prioress. And when the permission was refused, she replied, Well, I know that just at this moment our Lord has such a longing for a tiny bunch of grapes which no one will give him that he will perforce have to come and steal it. <laughs> I do not ask anything. This would be to stray from my path of self-surrender. I only beseech Our Lady to remind her Jesus of the title of thief which he takes to himself in the Gospels, so that he may not forget to come and take me away. One day, Sœur Therese took an ear of corn from a sheaf they had brought her. The wheat was so laden with grain that it bent on its stalk, and after gazing upon it for some time, she said to the mother prioress, Mother, that ear of corn is the image of my soul. God has loaded it with graces for me and many others, and it is my dearest wish ever to bend under the weight of God's gifts, acknowledging that all comes from Him. She was right. Her soul was indeed laden with graces, and it was easy to discern the Spirit of God speaking His praises out of the mouth of that innocent child. Had not this Spirit of Truth already dictated these words to the great Teresa of Avila? Let those souls who have reached to perfect union with God hold themselves in high esteem with a humble and holy presumption. Let them keep unceasingly before their eyes the remembrance of the good things they have received, and beware of the thought that they are practicing humility in not recognizing the gifts of God. Is it not clear that the constant remembrance of gifts bestowed serves to increase the love of the giver? How can he, who ignores the riches he possesses, spend them generously upon others? But the above was not the only occasion on which the little Therese of Lisieux gave utterance to words that proved prophetic. In the month of April 1895, while she was still in excellent health, she had said in confidence to one of the older nuns, I shall die soon. I do not say that it will be in a few months, but in two or three years at most. I know it because of what is taking place in my soul. 
the novices betrayed surprise when she read their inmost thoughts. This is my secret, she said to them. I never reprimand you without first invoking our blessed lady, and asking her to inspire me as to what will be most for your good. And I am often astonished myself at the things I teach you. At such times I feel that I make no mistake, and that it is Jesus who speaks by my lips. During her illness, one of her sisters had experienced some moments of acute distress, amounting almost to discouragement, at the thought of the inevitable parting. Immediately afterward she went to the infirmary, but was careful not to let any sign of grief be seen. What was her surprise when Therese, in a sad and serious tone, thus addressed her? We ought not to weep like those who have no hope. One of the mothers, coming to visit her, did her a trifling service. How happy I should be, thought the mother, if this angel would only say, I will repay you in heaven. At that instant, Sor Therese, turning to her, said, Mother, I will repay you in heaven. But more surprising than all was her consciousness of the mission for which our Lord had destined her. The veil which hides the future seemed lifted, and more than once she revealed to us its secrets in prophecies which have already been realized. I have never given the good God anything but love. It is with love he will repay. After my death, I will let fall a shower of roses. At another time she interrupted a sister who was speaking to her of the happiness of heaven by the sublime words, It is not that that attracts me. And what attracts you? asked the other. Oh, it is love, to love, to be beloved and to return to earth to win love for our love. One evening she welcomed Mother Agnes of Jesus with an extraordinary expression of joy. Mother, she said, some notes from a concert far away have just reached my ears and have made me think that soon I shall be listening to the wondrous melodies of paradise. The thought, however, gave me but a moment's joy. One hope alone makes my heart beat fast, the love that I shall receive and the love I shall be able to give. I feel that my mission is soon to begin, my mission to make others love God as I love Him. To each soul my little way. Ellipsis I will spend my heaven in doing good upon earth. Nor is this impossible, since from the very heart of the beatific vision the angels keep watch over us. No, there can be no rest for me until the end of the world. But when the angel shall have said, Time is no more, then I shall rest, then I shall be able to rejoice, because the number of the elect will be complete. 
And what is this little way that you would teach to souls? It is the way of spiritual childhood, the way of trust and absolute self-surrender. I want to point out to them the means that I have always found so perfectly successful, to tell them that there is but one thing to do here below. We must offer Jesus the flowers of little sacrifices and win him by a caress. That is how I have won him, and that is why I shall be made so welcome. Should I guide you wrongly by my little way of love, she said to a novice, do not fear that I shall allow you to continue therein. I should soon come back to the earth and tell you to take another road. If I do not return, then believe in the truth of these my words. We can never have too much confidence in the good God. He is so mighty, so merciful. As we hope in him, so shall we receive. On the eve of the feast of Our Lady of Carmel, a novice said to her, I think that if you were to die tomorrow after Holy Communion, I should be quite consoled. It would be such a beautiful death. Therese answered quickly, Die after Holy Communion upon a great feast? Nay, not so. In my little way, everything is most ordinary. All that I do, little souls must be able to do likewise. And to one of her missionary brothers she wrote, What draws me to my heavenly home is the summons of my Lord, together with the hope that at length I shall love him as my heart desires, and shall be able to make him loved by a multitude of souls who will bless him throughout eternity. And in another letter to China, I trust fully that I shall not remain idle in heaven. My desire is to continue my work for the church and for souls. I ask this of God, and I am convinced he will hear my prayer. You see that if I quit the battlefield so soon, it is not from a selfish desire of repose. For a long time now, suffering has been my heaven here upon earth, and I can hardly conceive how I shall become acclimatized to a land where joy is unmixed with sorrow. <laughs> Jesus will certainly have to work a complete change in my soul, else I could never support the ecstasies of paradise. It was quite true. Suffering had become her heaven upon earth. She welcomed it as we do happiness. When I suffer much, she would say, when something painful or disagreeable happens to me, instead of a melancholy look, I answer by a smile. At first I did not always succeed, but now it has become a habit which I am glad to have acquired. A certain sister entertained doubts concerning the patience of Therese. One day, during a visit, she remarked that the invalid's face wore an expression of unearthly joy, and she sought to know the reason. "'It is because the pain is so acute just now,' Therese replied. 
I have always forced myself to love suffering and to give it a glad welcome. Why are you so bright this morning? asked Mother Agnes of Jesus. Because of two little crosses. Nothing gives me little joys like little crosses. And another time? You have had many trials today? Yes, but I love them. Ellipsis. I love all the good God sends me. Your sufferings are terrible. No, they are not terrible. Can a little victim of love find anything terrible that is sent by her spouse? Each moment he sends me what I am able to bear, and nothing more. And if he increase the pain, my strength is increased as well. But I could never ask for greater sufferings. I am too little a soul. They would then be of my own choice. I should have to bear them all without him, and I have never been able to do anything when left to myself. Thus spoke that wise and prudent virgin on her deathbed, and her lamp, filled to the brim with the oil of virtue, burned brightly to the end. If, as the Holy Spirit reminds us in the book of Proverbs, a man's doctrine is proved by his patience, those who have heard her may well believe in her doctrine, for she has proved it by a patience no test could overcome. At each visit the doctor expressed his admiration. If only you knew what she has to endure! I have never seen anyone suffer so intensely with such a look of supernatural joy. Ellipsis. I shall not be able to cure her. She was not made for this earth. In view of her extreme weakness, he ordered some strengthening remedies. Therese was at first distressed because of their cost, but she afterwards admitted, I am no longer troubled at having to take these expensive remedies, for I have read that when they were given to St. Gertrude, she was gladdened by the thought that it would redound to the good of the benefactors. Since our Lord himself has said, Whatever you do to the least of my little ones, you do unto me. I am convinced that medicines are powerless to cure me, she added, but I have made a covenant with God that the poor missionaries, who have neither time nor means to take care of themselves, may profit thereby. End of Part 2 of the Epilogue The Story of a Soul, Epilogue, by A Prioress of the Carmel Part 3 She was much moved by the constant gifts of flowers made to her by her friends outside the convent, and again by the visits of a sweet little redbreast that loved to play around her bed. She saw in these things the hand of God. Mother, I feel deeply the many touching proofs of God's love for me. I am laden with them. Nevertheless, I continue in the deepest gloom. I suffer much, very much, and yet my state is one of profound peace. 
all my longings have been realized. I am full of confidence. Shortly afterwards, she told me this touching little incident. One evening during the great silence, the infirmarian brought me a hot water bottle for my feet and put tincture of iodine on my chest. I was in a burning fever and parched with thirst, and whilst submitting to these remedies, I could not help saying to our Lord, My Jesus, thou seest I am already burning, and they have brought me more heat and fire. Oh, if they had brought me even half a glass of water, what a comfort it would have been! My Jesus, thy little child is so thirsty, but she is glad to have this opportunity of resembling thee more closely, and thus helping thee to save souls. The infirmarian soon left me, and I did not expect to see her again until the following morning. What was my surprise when she returned a few minutes later with a refreshing drink? "'It has just struck me that you may be thirsty,' she said, "'so I shall bring you something every evening.' I looked at her astounded, and when I was once more alone I melted into tears. Oh, how good Jesus is! How tender and loving! How easy it is to reach his heart! On September 6th, the little spouse of Jesus received a touching proof of the loving thought of his sacred heart. She had frequently expressed a wish to possess a relic of her special patron, the venerable Theophon Venard. But, as her desire was not realized, she said no more. She was quite overcome, therefore, when Mother Prioress brought her the longed-for treasure, received that very day. She kissed it repeatedly, and would not consent to part with it. It may be asked why she was so devoted to this young martyr. She herself explained the reason in an affectionate interview with her own sisters. Theophon Venard is a little saint. His life was not marked by anything extraordinary. He had an ardent devotion to our Immaculate Mother and a tender love of his own family. Dwelling on these words, she added, And I too love my family with a tender love. I fail to understand those saints who do not share my feelings. As a parting gift, I have copied for you some passages from his last letters home. His soul and mine have many points of resemblance, and his words do but re-echo my thoughts. We give here a copy of that letter, which one might have believed was composed by Therese herself. I can find nothing on earth that can make me truly happy. The desires of my heart are too vast, and nothing of what the world calls happiness can satisfy it. Time, for me, will soon be no more. My thoughts are fixed on eternity. My heart is full of peace, like a tranquil lake or a cloudless sky. I do not regret this life on earth. I thirst for the waters of life eternal. Yet a little while, and my soul will have quitted this earth, will have finished her exile, will have ended her combat. 
I go to heaven. I am about to enter the abode of the blessed, to see what the eye hath never seen, to hear what the ear hath never heard, to enjoy those things the heart of man hath not conceived. Ellipsis. I have reached the hour so coveted by us all. It is indeed true that our Lord chooses the little ones to confound the great ones of this earth. I do not rely on my own strength, but upon him who on the cross vanquished the powers of hell. I am a spring flower which the Divine Master calls for his pleasure. We are all flowers planted on this earth, and God will gather us in his own good time, some sooner, some later. I, little flower of one day, am the first to be gathered. But we shall meet again in paradise, where lasting joy will be our portion. Sister Teresa of the Child Jesus, using the words of the angelic martyr Theophan Venard. Toward the end of September, when something was repeated to her that had been said at recreation, concerning the responsibility of those who have care for souls, she seemed to revive a little, and gave utterance to these beautiful words. To him that is little mercy is granted. It is possible to remain little, even in the most responsible position. And is it not written that at the last day the Lord will arise to save the meek and lowly ones of this earth? He does not say to judge, but to save. As time went on, the tide of suffering rose higher and higher, and she became so weak that she was unable to make the slightest movement without assistance. Even to hear anyone whisper increased her discomfort, and the fever and oppression were so extreme that it was with the greatest difficulty she was able to articulate a word. And yet a sweet smile was always on her lips. Her only fear was lest she should give her sisters any extra trouble. And until two days before her death, she would never allow anyone to remain with her during the night. However, in spite of her entreaties, the infirmarian would visit her from time to time. On one occasion she found Therese with hands joined and eyes raised to heaven. "'What are you doing?' she asked. You ought to try and go to sleep. I cannot, sister. I am suffering too much, so I am praying. And what do you say to Jesus? I say nothing. I only love him. Oh, how good God is! she sometimes exclaimed. Truly he must be very good to give me strength to bear all I have to suffer. One day she said to the mother prioress, Mother, I would like to make known to you the state of my soul, but I cannot. I feel too much overcome just now. In the evening 
Therese sent her these lines, written in pencil with a trembling hand. Oh, my God, how good thou art to the little victim of thy merciful love! Now, even when thou joinest these bodily pains to those of my soul, I cannot bring myself to say, The anguish of death hath encompassed me. I rather cry out in my gratitude. I have gone down into the valley of the shadow of death, but I fear no evil, because thou, O Lord, art with me. Her little mother said to her, Some think that you are afraid of death. That may easily come to pass, she answered. I do not rely on my own feelings, for I know how frail I am. It will be time enough to bear that cross if it comes. Meantime, I wish to rejoice in my present happiness. When the chaplain asked me if I were resigned to die, I answered, Father, I need rather to be resigned to live. I feel nothing but joy at the thought of death. Do not be troubled, dear mother, if I suffer much, and show no sign of happiness at the end. Did not our Lord himself die a victim of love? And see how great was his agony! At last dawned the eternal day. It was Thursday, September thirtieth, 1897. In the morning the sweet victim, her eyes fixed on Our Lady's statue, spoke thus of her last night on earth. Oh, with what fervor I have prayed to her! And yet it has been pure agony, without a ray of consolation. Earth's air is failing me. When shall I breathe the air of heaven? For weeks she had been unable to raise herself in bed, but at half-past two in the afternoon she sat up and exclaimed, Dear mother, the chalice is full to overflowing. I could never have believed that it was possible to suffer so intensely. I can only explain it by my extreme desire to save souls. And a little while after? Yes, all that I have written about my thirst for suffering is really true. I do not regret having surrendered myself to love. She repeated these last words several times. A little later she added, Mother, prepare me to die well. The good mother prioress encouraged her with these words, My child, you are quite ready to appear before God, for you have always understood the virtue of humility. Then, in striking words, Therese bore witness to herself. Yes, I feel it. My soul has ever sought the truth. I have understood humility of heart. At half-past four her agony began. 
the agony of this victim of divine love. When the community gathered around her, she thanked them with her sweetest smile, and then, completely given over to love and suffering, the crucifix clasped in her failing hands, she entered on the final combat. The sweat of death lay heavy on her brow. She trembled. But as a pilot, when close to harbor, is not dismayed by the fury of the storm, so this soul, strong in faith, saw close at hand the beacon lights of heaven, and valiantly put forth every effort to reach the shore. As the convent bells rang the evening Angelus, she fixed an inexpressible look upon the statue of the Immaculate Virgin, the star of the sea. Was it not the moment to repeat her beautiful prayer? O thou who camest to smile on me in the morn of my life, come once again and smile, mother, for now it is eventide. A few minutes after seven, turning to the prioress, the poor little martyr asked, Mother, is it not the agony? Am I not going to die? Yes, my child, it is the agony. But Jesus perhaps wills that it be prolonged for some hours. In a sweet and plaintive voice she replied, Ah, very well, then, very well. I do not wish to suffer less. Then, looking at her crucifix, Oh, I love him. My God, I love thee. These were her last words. She had scarcely uttered them when, to our great surprise, she sank down quite suddenly, her head inclined a little to the right, in the attitude of the virgin martyrs offering themselves to the sword, or rather as a victim of love awaiting from the divine archer the fiery shaft by which she longs to die. Suddenly she raised herself, as though called by a mysterious voice and opening her eyes, which shone with unutterable happiness and peace, fixed her gaze a little above the statue of Our Lady. Thus she remained for about the space of a credo, when her blessed soul, now become the prey of the divine eagle, was borne away to the heights of heaven. A few days before her death, this little saint had said, The death of love which I so much desire is that of Jesus upon the cross. Her prayer was fully granted. Darkness enveloped her, and her soul was steeped in anguish. And yet, may we not apply to her also that sublime prophecy of St. John of the Cross, referring to souls consumed by the fire of divine love? They die victims of the onslaughts of love in raptured ecstasies, like the swan 
whose song grows sweeter as death draws nigh. Wherefore the psalmist declared, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. For then it is that the rivers of love burst forth from the soul, and are whelmed in the ocean of divine love. No sooner had her spotless soul taken its flight than the joy of that last rapture imprinted itself on her brow, and a radiant smile illumined her face. We placed a palm branch in her hand, and the lilies and roses that adorned her in death were figures of her white robe of baptism made red by her martyrdom of love. On the Saturday and Sunday a large crowd passed before the grating of the nun's chapel to gaze on the mortal remains of the little flower of Jesus. Hundreds of medals and rosaries were brought to touch the little queen as she lay in the triumphant beauty of her last sleep. On October 4th, the day of the funeral, there gathered in the chapel of the Carmel a goodly company of priests. The honor was surely due to one who had prayed so earnestly for those called to that sacred office. After a last solemn blessing, this grain of priceless wheat was cast into the furrow by the hands of Holy Mother Church. Who shall tell how many ripened ears have sprung forth since? How many the sheaves yet to come? Amen, amen, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falling into the ground die, itself remaineth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Once more the word of the Divine Reaper has been magnificently fulfilled. Notes When asked before her death how they should pray to her in heaven, Sœur Thérèse, with her wonted simplicity, made answer, You will call me Little Thérèse, Petite Thérèse. And at Gallipoli, on the occasion of her celebrated apparition in the Carmel there, when the prioress, taking her to be St. Teresa of Avila, addressed her as Our Holy Mother, the visitor, adopting her then official title, replied, Nay, I am not Our Holy Mother. I am the servant of God, Sœur Thérèse of Lisieux. This, her own name of Sœur Thérèse, has been retained in the present edition, unless it were advisable to set down her name in full, Sister Teresa of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face. The name of the little flower, borrowed by her from the blessed Theophon Venard, and used so extensively in the pages of her manuscript, is the one by which she is best known in English-speaking lands. Signed, the Editor. End of epilogue.